Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. I've never felt power like this before. Stuart. You wanted me to get out of the house more, right? And Arnie. You are all my children, and you're lost because you follow blind leaders. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review. Who will you stand with, the humans or us? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men Apocalypse. Starring James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Oscar Isaac, Nicholas Holt, Rose Byrne, Ty Sheridan, Sophie Turner, Olivia Munn, Lucas Till, Evan Peters, Cody Smith-McPhee, Alexandra Shipp, directed by Brian Singer. Forget everything you think you know. Whatever lessons you learned in school, whatever your parents taught you, none of that matters. You're not kids anymore. You're not students. You're podcasters. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Play. Stuart in LA. I've been called many things over many lifetimes. Ra, Krishna, Yahweh, but now you can just call me Jacob. Or do I call you Jacob? <laughs> yes, there is a Jacob in here. There's a Jacob that spells it the way you do, so it yeah. really pulled me out of the movie. <laughs> I thought he said bra at one point. I'm like, I was having trouble hearing Apocalypse. I'm like, they called him bra? <laughs> yeah, bra. <laughs> when he hung out with the surfers, yeah. Yes, yes, that, the surfing mutants. I want to see that film. They table surf in this movie. Does that count? Well, welcome back to what has got to be classified, at least by me, the most consistently satisfying wing of the Marvel Universe. I mean, I've complained a fair share about comic book adaptations. But by and large, X-Men is a very dependable franchise. I have only not recommended this twice. And they were both the solo films, right? Deadpool and Wolverine? Oh, Deadpool. I was... Uh, yes, three then, if you must count Deadpool. I forget about that. Yes, this is the second X-Men movie of the year and the less profitable one. I keep forgetting about that low-cost lark that came out in early part of the year that everyone loved but me apparently everyone like you are the only one if charles was sitting in cerebro and showed the entire world the people who enjoyed deadpool it would be lit up like a christmas tree and the people who didn't there'd be one blip in la <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta say, I, what's telling is my wife loved that Deadpool movie, has watched very few of these superhero films, so she's kind of interested to see this X-Men one, knowing that, it, oh, this is that universe the Deadpool came from. Very different reaction. She's like, why isn't this just about one character, and why isn't it funny? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if Deadpool would show up here, but they, they might have if they had had time, but maybe they didn't think Deadpool was going to be what it was, and clearly there's enough characters in this movie, but there's no room in the end for one more. 
Or, you know, there's no room for anything jovial, humorous, no levity in this film. I mean, oh, come on, we're going to the 80s. There's a little bit of, of levity. We get Michael Jackson jackets. We get, we get Ali Sheedy. Ali Sheedy, exactly. Yes. But it isn't a light 80s-like comedy. Uh, only in parts. I found myself laughing, but I don't think I was supposed to. Yes, this movie is arriving <laughs> yes. with some of the worst buzz an X-Men movie has ever gotten. And that made me a little worried. I try not to read reviews beforehand, but it seemed pretty consistent that people were, at the very least, indifferent. And many people were angry by what they were seeing. Well, I know, coming from the comic side, like... You're trying to take someone like Apocalypse, which is just convoluted comic book history. It, how is that going to work in a movie when you have 120 minutes or just over 120 minutes in this film's case to establish that? It seemed a bit ambitious. And what I saw from the trailers, it didn't look like it was going to live up to pull off that ambition. And I did not read a single review about this going in. I didn't know too much about the buzz, but I can tell you that... I was so excited for Days of Future Past and so jazzed for Deadpool. And this movie, the marketing department really should probably all be fired. Those trailers kind of suck. Every time I saw them, I'm like, this is the movie that we're covering this year that I was least excited for based upon the trailers. And that includes Conjuring 2. And I didn't really like Conjuring or Annabelle. You're saying they Ghostbusters up this trailer? Yeah, <laughs> Ghostbusters has a better trailer than this. The most disliked trailer in history still had a little more going for it than these X-Men trailers. The Days of Future Past trailers had me, like, welling up at the I don't want your future lines. This, I'm like, well, it's got mutants. I did go back <laughs> and re-watch First Class and Days of Future Past coming into this. They did release what they call the Rogue Cut of Days of Future Past, where Anna Paquin actually has a reason for showing up and not just a WTF moment right at the... <laughs> end of the movie and I had forgotten in just two years how much I really enjoyed that film and I always thought of it as first class's lesser sibling but it really is a good movie it's expansive it's kind of funny Hugh Jackman carries it and the two casts work well together and the rogue cut adds quite a bit more to it it's deftly edited this, I think, is my preferred cut, is the longer cut of that movie. It's just, I enjoy being in that world 20 more minutes. Oh, you know, I went back and rewatched First Class, Days of Future Past as well, but I couldn't get my hands on a rogue cut. I just watched the version I saw in the theaters. But I feel glad, because I was the one, I think, out of the three of us last time that was saying, no, this is a really good movie, and all I could hear from you guys was, it wasn't the movie that the 60s version was. And so... It's not... It isn't, but I don't feel like that should have been the focus. The focus is they made a very vastly entertaining film. And yeah, I, I like both of those movies. And my biggest problem with it, again, was Brian Singer trying to reset his status quo, which it just bothered me. Maybe decades in the future, I'll be able to watch it, not have that on my mind. But it just seemed like such a self-congratulatory film that he was going to reestablish his vision. Hell, you're going to get some of that here, too. Oh, I know. I know. He has actually said in interviews that like his biggest regret is not finishing off this saga and walking away from it in part three and not being part of first class. 
Is that a nice way of saying that he wishes he hadn't done Superman? Or Jack the Giant Killer? Well, does the man have a career anymore? Or has he been, but after a series of failures, just now the X-Men hack who's going to do nothing but X-Men films? Well, to be fair, he's quite successful on television. He did create the show House. He's had several other shows that have come and gone, some critically loved, some not. He works on other things. Maybe at the movies, yes, Valkyrie is a terrible film, and Jack the Giant Killer looks so bad, I can't even stand to watch the trailer, but I think that he has still been very successful. But then why is he choosing to do nothing but X-Men films? I honestly feel like he's in movie director detention, and... Despite how awesome television is these days, I don't feel like television creators still get the same respect as feature film directors, especially of big-budget blockbusters. Well, if you're asking me, my opinion of him is I don't think he was ever as good as they claimed he was. I think Usual Suspects is a highly overrated film. I think it's entertaining and fun, but I never thought it was a brilliant movie, and I think maybe expectations were created for him that he was going to be a new Tarantino, when in fact he's just... Yeah, an entertainer, a new Tony Scott. And so that's fine. That's all that he has to be. And coming back to the X-Men franchise, to me, he's done well there. I would rather see that than another Valkyrie. Well, yes, yes. And I guess he is doing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for next year. So he's not only X-Men, but it sounds like he wants to keep directing this series or... He likes the paychecks. I don't know how cynical I want to be just yet. (laughs) But this is kind of the end. The end of the second X-Men trilogy. You take Wolverine, Wolverine 2, and Deadpool out of it. We've got two trilogies of films here. This one, the time-traveling one. Now, the producer, Simon Kinberg, said that this isn't the end of a trilogy and that The next X-Men film is going to take place in the 90s. I just can't wait to see what happens when we get to the 2000s. Won't that be (laughs) novel for an X-Men film? But this is the end of all the contracts. Jennifer Lawrence has publicly reveled in the fact that she's free from her Fox chains. Fassbender. Well, did you see that crappy Assassin's Creed trailer? I think he'll sign on for anything. (laughs) Yeah, I held him in high regard and then I saw that trailer. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, he'll never come back. He's a respected actor. Oh my God, he'll do anything for money. (laughs) But we got James McAvoy, who seems to enjoy it, but it's certainly not going to be cheap for Fox to get these actors back when they got them at bargain basement rates in 2011. So I view this as the end of a trilogy and an unknown future past. Yes, it, it is an apocalypse in that respect. It could be the end of the franchise as we know it. How did you guys see this movie? I paid the glorious price of $25 to not see this in 3D. (laughs) I didn't know that was possible. You could charge so much money. Did you have a date that go with you? How did you spend $25 on non-3D? Did you get those D-bag or the D-box seats that rotate while you watch it? Well, yeah. I had the Dolby Theater experience, which... Means that, yes, it had recliners that shook. Yes. And it had a Dolby sound system, which was, you know, very loud and probably would make me shake anyway. <laughs> but that was $25. And I got to say, man, that is not a uh, experience that I want to live again and again and again. While it might have been cool in a theme park kind of way, 
I do feel like this can't be the future of theatrical distribution. If they think, like Storm, I don't know if you guys had this, but Storm popped up before the movie yes, yes. to say, hey, everybody, thanks for coming to a movie theater. This was made because we want you to see it at a movie theater. And I'm like, yeah, for $25 a head. I mean, this cannot stand. Well, I, I didn't pay $25 a seat. I just went to a regular 2D showing. I went Thursday night, which is, I guess, technically the preview night. But come on, Thursday nights are really just opening night now for yep. these big blockbusters. But I was surprised. I was going in thinking, you know, here in California, school's still going on. I know it seems like the rest of the country, Thursday was the last day of school, but not here. It's a holiday weekend. But again, it's Thursday night. Theater was packed almost sold out which was a surprise on a preview night usually i find those a bit more sparse unless it's something big like star wars well Stuart, you're gonna kill me i saw this movie twice for 12 bucks (laughs) (laughs) i went and saw this the only tickets being sold for pre-order for the thursday night premiere was a 2d ticket so that's what i bought and then i went back the next day to see it in 3D because none of us had. <laughs> I thought I had. Yeah. Stuart is soon for $25. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, where's my glasses? I'd be like, oh, they're going to make it look like Cyclops' headgear. I know what they're going to do. I'm like, no, you get nothing. I'm like, $25? <laughs> nothing. Not even some chips. I lucked out. I had rebought X-Men First Class in its new release with extra bonus features that Fox put out like two weeks ago. God, I, I fear how many times they release their movies. But it came with an $8 off coupon that wouldn't scan, so they just let me in completely for free for the 3D showing. <laughs> you could see a 3D movie for $8? That in and of itself is shocking. It was supposed to be $12.50. That's why I got an extra $4.50 when it wouldn't scan. It was a matinee in my defense, but then okay. I saw the 2D not matinee, and so I saw it twice for 12 bucks. And let me just say about the 3D... If you see this movie, and that's what we're here to discuss is if you see this movie at all, but if you see it, see it in 3D. The post-conversion is one of the best I've ever seen. There are entire sequences, the entire opening credits, the awakening of Apocalypse, all this stuff just zings in 3D. Psylocke, Psy Powers, it's a really good 3D. Hmm. There's even one shot of Jennifer Lawrence from the top down where her boobs are 3D. I'm not even joking. (laughs) Go see 3D. Some pervy 3D post-converter there, but... Who am I to complain? <laughs> uh, obviously, you're not. So you get to do the plot then. If you saw it twice, tell us, Arnie, what's an apocalypse. We can get into it. It's 1983, and for 10 years, mutants have lived in the open with general acceptance by humans. But that is all to change when a mutant-worshipping cult raises and Saba Nur, an all-powerful, immortal mutant betrayed and buried alive in ancient Egypt over 5,000 years earlier and played by Oscar Isaac. Now, comic fans know Ensaba Nur as Apocalypse from the comic books, but he's never called Apocalypse here. He is, however, called Clownface, which may be what I settle on. <laughs> Clownface finds himself in an unfamiliar time, but catches up on 5,600 years of history thanks to satellite TV. He then resumes his original plan to rule the world. His MO means he has four henchmen, or horsemen of the Apocalypse, and for those he recruits... As Famine, a weather-changing mutant, Aurora Monroe, also called Storm and played by Alexandra Ship, giving us a much better accent than Halle Berry ever did. For Death, he finds Angel, played by Ben Hardy. Pestilence, he recruits Ninja Psylocke, played by G4's Olivia Moon. 
And for war, he recruits Michael Fassbender's Eric Lenscher, also known as Magneto. Magneto is in a vulnerable spot. He'd spent much of the past 10 years living in hiding in Poland, getting married and having a daughter. But he uses his powers to save a co-worker at his steel mill, and so Polish police come for the fugitive and accidentally kill his wife and child. Distraught, Magneto is very open to Apocalypse's plan to basically kill everyone on Earth and lead the survivors. The only ones who can stop this plan are the X-Men, led by Charles Xavier, played again by James McAvoy. His returning team consists of mutant hero Mystique, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Don't call her a hero. Alex Havoc Summers, again played by Lucas Till, and Hank Beast McCoy, again played by Nicholas Holt. Joining them are new recruits, Havoc's teenage eye-shooting brother Scott Cyclops Summers, played by Ty Sheridan, Psychic Telekinetic Jean Grey, played by Sophie Turner, Teleporting Blue Nightcrawler Kurt Wagner, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, and Speedster Quicksilver Peter Maximoff, again played by Evan Peters. Clownface sees Xavier the means to rule the world through mind control, so he kidnaps the professor with the intent of transferring his essence into Charles's body, thus stealing the psychic power. So the rest of the X-Men must escape mutant hunter Colonel Stryker, who has captured the X-Men after Clownface used Charles's power to launch every nuke in the world into space, where they're going to birth Nuclear Man, I hope. Superman 4, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> but the X-Men do travel to Egypt and face off against the Horsemen, Magneto starting to use his power to destroy every structure on Earth. A big battle occurs, and finally Jean Grey unleashes her immense psychic power, and Magneto changes sides because he remembers he was in the good film, and together they kill Clownface and win the battle. And the students now train as warriors under the watch of Xavier as credits roll. One of the things I really appreciated about this new trilogy, I guess we're calling it, although there were other movies inserted in there, it's bigger than three films, but that they're origin stories, that we've had basically two origin stories for Wolverine, First Class I felt like was the origin story for Magneto, Days of Future Past felt like the origin for Professor Xavier. This is really the origin story for all the mutants, and unlike what I used to believe, that they were all born of the nuclear age and the atom bomb, this has started thousands and thousands and thousands of years before Christ. I was wondering how you'd react to that, because you had a problem with X-Men Origins Wolverine, that Wolverine was born in the 1800s, so that we start at 3600 BCE, I figured would rankle you. And also we get somebody screaming up at the sky. I was thinking X-Men Origins Wolverine a lot uh, in this movie. We'll, we'll get to that part where someone <laughs> screams up to the sky because I was upset about that. But I'm going to say this, like, when I think about these X-Men films, uh, the first two that Singer did especially, and also First Class, Days of Future Past as well, they've seemed mostly kind of like serious and like they've had their fun moments, but kind of just a down-to-earth take on this X-Men universe. Going back to 3600 BC, to ancient Egypt with these huge pyramids. This is the kind of stuff that I was worried about going to Apocalypse. But I, I kind of enjoyed this. Like, it's the best scene from a mummy film that I think there is that exists. <laughs> like, I, it's, it's weird and goofy. Like, kind of just summing up this film, like, they really go for that comic book aesthetic. 
in this film because they have to with this villain. Like, so yeah, when we go to Egypt and they're walking in with their big animal heads to disguise themselves and, and this action scene we're going to get, uh, unlike Days of Future Past, where I'm like, this future is not gritty enough. Why do they have dyed purple hair? They When do they have time to do this when they have robots hunting them? Like, I went with the goofiness of this whole Egypt scene. Do I like it? I don't know. I mean, they prepare me for it. I want to just say that I knew this was coming thanks to the sting at the end of Days of Future Past. A teaser where you didn't understand what was going on? Exactly. I knew that they were going to go here. It was a different character. We're going to get Oscar Isaac as the character that's in the robe here. But they explain that. Basically... This is a character that, that exists through asexual reproduction. Who knows how old he is? We're only seeing him here, but in fact, he's been alive even longer than that. He just basically, once he finds a new mutant with the power he wants, he decides to sync up with them using a solar-powered pyramid. I'm not a history major. It, we're going to be told that this guy's been around for who knows how long that he has helped the rise of civilization. From my understanding, though, like ancient Egypt, it's called the cradle of civilization because that's like where this kind of thing happened. I guess he'll talk about Babel. Maybe he's there to help build that tower at some point. Or he just learned about it from satellite television, Jacob. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But... You know, I was reading the comic book origin, all this weird transferring stuff. This is supposed to be like in the comics from the Celestials, who are like these outer space gods that he has technology from. I'm glad they don't go into that because watching this, you just assume, oh, like this is his cult. This is the way he transfers things through weird sun and I don't know gold. I kept, if you sound Austin Powers gold member, I kept thinking, I love gold because <laughs> there seems to be a lot of gold involved with him transferring bodies. There does the, and, this movie, I'll call out right now, the CGI is sometimes not fantastic. Yeah, we'll get there with the climax. Well, he, we'll get there right here, because whatever this gold stuff is that goes from, like, one of the pillars to the other when he's transferring his body, T2 did it better in the 90s, you know? This just looked like a cartoon. Apocalypse himself, so did you say he does transfer bodies, Jacob? No, but he has this outer space technology that yeah. helps power him up. But I think there's no one that understands X-Men continuity because it is so convoluted. So I don't think he transfers bodies, but he has received help from outer space gods to get better powers. I've read a few comics with Apocalypse in them. I mostly know him because they did like Apocalypse stories in the 90s X-Men animated series. And... He's a badass mutant. He can grow. He's huge. He's not normal human size. Yeah, I remember the toy where his limbs would pop out so he could be taller. Yeah, and he's insane. He believes himself to be a god. They do think he's the first mutant. They do think he's immortal. So what they've done here to him is really depower him. He does have a lot of ill-defined powers, he has some kind of sand power. He can move sand. He can build yes. things from sand. <laughs> the Magneto controls magnets and Apocalypse controls sand. Yeah, and he can, like, rev up other mutants' powers. And he can do basically whatever he needs to in a given scene. But they took away a lot of what made him really badass in the comics. I mean, I've got a giant statue of Apocalypse in my recording studio. He's got a chainsaw hand. I wanted to see a chainsaw <laughs> hand. Is that Army of Darkness crossover? It, I mean, seriously, he could mutate his own limbs into 
weapons and well maybe he hasn't met that mutant yet i mean what we see here is that oscar isaac is laid down on the table they cut him and he reheals he's the healing one by transferring into him this guy is now going to be invincible there's nothing that can slash him or presumably kill him he can just rebuild whatever cells get damaged kind of like wolverine and the body transfer happens they have a lot of mutants here though i mean he has the four horsemen of the apocalypse there. There's some scarred up priestess overseeing the transfer and she's got telekinesis. And when the rebels come, she's going to like turn one into a human pretzel. And I love that. Yeah. She folds them in like a t-shirt or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was the coolest one. Yeah. There's other ones. If someone got thrown against the wall and turns into a skeleton, I, they have different names. There's death, there's pestilence, famine, war, you know, the classic four horsemen kind of concepts here. And they are definitely playing off of that. They're trying to say, without saying it too loudly, but it was in the trailer, that maybe the Bible got these ideas from this. That this is the foundational stories that work their way into all of our religions and lore. Yeah, and they did have that line in the, in the actual movie. There's a lot in the trailers that is not in the actual movie, but that line made it. But we're supposed to just take Apocalypse as a super strong mutant. Like, there's a voiceover. I think it's by Fassbender. This is Magneto talking, saying... I, I thought it was McAvoy. Uh, oh, is it McAvoy? Yeah, because oh, okay. Xavier always does the voiceovers, and... So, yeah, it's it's James McAvoy. Yeah, we're to believe, you know, we think going in, oh, Apocalypse, he's this crazy godlike mutant. But the insinuation is that, no, he's just a mutant that's kind of gone crazy and believes he's a god. He's not really that powerful. Do you guys think that voiceover was added in post because test oh, audiences yes. had no clue what the fuck was going on? Of course. <laughs> no, I, I assumed that because, yeah, we always start that way, that that was... Just a way of reorientating to the formula. The fact that it, the voiceover is so specific about how, for all their powers, mutants are like lost children. Give one the power of prophecy, they may start to fear the future. Give them wings, they may fly too close to the sun. Make one all-powerful, they may believe they were meant to rule. Give one a camera, they might make... X-Men Origins Wolverine, yeah. It can go really bad, but you bring up an interesting point here, which is that why should we fear Apocalypse, or this character, uh, in Sabanu? I mean, if he is indeed with all these powers, wouldn't we all worship him? I mean, just naturally, wouldn't he be the coolest guy in the room? Yeah, but he's also a stylist. He's gonna change your hair and tattoo your face. I mean, I can see why people would rebel against his rule. Yep. But when we get to future day, we there is going to be a cult for Apocalypse. Like, we'll find out there are people secretly worshipping him and trying to bring him back. Well, they worship all mutants, or these various cults. I'm imagining there's a cult of Magneto somewhere, too. And But you bring up the rebels, we don't really ever understand why they're rebelling. I mean, I guess I can presume in ancient Egypt, no one wants to be a slave. They didn't like it when there wasn't a mutant in the story. But what is this about? I mean, why are they burying the temple? What are they hoping to do? I think to cut off the solar power, because apparently that's what you need to resurrect Apocalypse is the sun. So I, My question is, why don't they want to live under Apocalypse? We are never told. No. Because he's a bad guy? Yeah, that's the thing. This movie, I have huge problems with Apocalypse's motivation and a lot of character motivations. I really don't know what Apocalypse wants. I'm told by a voiceover he wants to rule. Why? What? Huh? I mean, he's 
just there for that reason and people fight him because they don't want to be ruled and we get a scene i guess we're on september 11th 3600 bc because they're going to bring down the temple with a few rocks and the things crumbling down in a very twin towers kind of way and i think they thought they could kill him and if that priestess hadn't cast a shield i'm under the impression that he may have been able to survive a cut or two but if you squash him like a frog he's gonna die Yes, they obviously think that they can stop this man from existing by bringing down the temple. I assume because they built the temple, they designed it to have fall-through floors and like pillars that collapse and all of that. This was all crafty slave architects that designed it this way. (laughs) Because it's weird to think that this pyramid that is so big is going to be under the ground by the time we get to modern-day Cairo. Yeah, it's a conceit that I had real trouble with, honestly. I don't think they intentionally built this with a booby trap in it. And in fact, later on, Apocalypse just kind of looks at Cairo and makes a pyramid appear. Did anyone build this or did he just raise it? Who knows? Well, that's what we saw in that teaser is him waving his skinny little arms. And yeah. Rocks float. Look. I'm not going to try to read too much into this goofy mummy opening. Like, there's some big stones that are held up by posts that they're going to cut down. They're going to slide down some ramps and bring down this tower. I've Look, we, we, we could talk about the, the structural integrity of pyramids all day. You're not going to get a satisfying answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just, like I said, I, I assume that slaves built the pyramids and that they designed it with the idea that one day they'd be able to kick in these things and send this whole structure under the ground with a god they don't like very much underneath it. And why they don't like him is an idea that I guess we can just understand. Nobody wants to be ruled by someone that wears a hoodie and says, I'm the best. (laughs) What we get after that is, I think, maybe the coolest X-Men credit sequence. It's 6,000 years of everything that he missed. Ooh, you're saying coolest. Maybe Arnie liked this in 3D, this time tunnel thing where I'm like, oh, okay, this is for the 3D audience because this looks bad and dumb and I didn't need it. I could have taken the jump. I, I didn't need a time tunnel when I watched 2001. I loved the time tunnel in 3D. I thought it was kind of cool, just the iconography that flies by. Yeah. You get to see a crucifix and a swastika and yeah, you get yeah. to see a lot of things and in 3d this is amazing this is like it's like a universal studios ride yes exactly i just absolutely thought this was thrilling in 3d it was part of the reason i felt i had to go back in 3d this was made for it does it look real no it looks like 80s animation you know looks like the last starfighter kind of stuff but it's cool in 3d and it's a nice i like the concept of seeing time this way you know the world war one planes everything that goes by the steam engine it's a good way of just saying all that has come between and even the x-men logo that shows up it's kind of apocalypsed out right he's got like the lines on his face and the forehead appliance well the x-men logo now has those lines yeah he's going to do this later when he's revived he's gonna touch a tv screen and and get the update the Ultron data dump is what I'll call it, where he realizes from watching a few commercials how bad humans are. But yeah, it was a fun way just to get us into the movie and not do the typical genetic strand DNA stuff that they always do. And I really love the score, too. I mean, the music in the entire opening, they've got like this Gregorian chant kind of oh Fortuna kind of stuff going on during the body transfer and apocalypse scenes. And then... It goes into like an X-Men theme. 
for the credits. I'm really grooving to the music of this film. It's honestly, that and the dog are my two favorite parts. We'll get to the dog, but I love the music. <laughs> that was my wife's favorite part, Pizza Dog. Wow, Pizza Dog. The surprise of the music is that we're going to end up in the 80s, and they don't really play off of the way that I think of 80s music being played off. We'll get one version of Iran in Egyptian, mm-hmm. and we'll get Eurythmic Sweet Dreams. But other than that, you're right, it's orchestral, and it could have existed in any time period. They do not go for a synth score. Yeah, I'm surprised how period light this is. They really dug into the 60s and the 70s in the last two. I loved Wolverine's outfits in Days of Future Past. I loved a very groovy mutation baby in the Austin Powers, the first one. Here, yes, like you said, Stuart, we're going to get a Michael Jackson jacket on Nightcrawler. I actually really like the fashion mystique wears. Jean Grey has some shoulder pads, but did this have to be... Does this really immerse itself in the 80s? I feel like this one is the most, well, that original 60s one, that was very 60s. But Days of Future Past, like, yeah, they had some clothes, they had a couple lines. I didn't feel that was too 70s. This one, I feel it's kind of overbearing. Like, Storm's going to look at the camera, basically, and say, welcome to the 80s, holding a Coca-Cola. I'm surprised it wasn't a new Coke. I, I'm. <laughs> they didn't have new Coke in 83, but I honestly thought she said welcome to the 80s because there just wasn't enough there to tell us it was the 80s on oh, its own. Oh, come on. When, when we get to the mansion with the students, they're going to go to the mall. They're, they're going to talk about Return of the Jedi. I, I feel like it kind of it's overbearing what they do with the 80s. We'll get to that scene, but... I actually want to give the compliment to this movie that of all the movies that have gone back to the 80s, this is the one that feels like it got it right. The haircuts, the fashion... This is actually how people look. When people usually do it, it's like, oh, let's overdo it. Let's do parachute pants and... Yeah, this is no hot tub time machine where it becomes a parody of the 80s. The wedding singer or something like that, where it's a parody of the time. Here, I'm like, yeah, I remember having that haircut. I remember those kinds of clothes. That The art direction of this movie is as on point as the last two movies. And I really do think that if you just want to see a time capsule of the era, this is just a great vision of that. Uh, We're watching a lot of 80s movies for our donation series, specifically 1986. Those films in the 80s were more 80s than this film. No, but here's the thing. Those films in the 80s were an extravagant view of the world. This movie is trying to recapture how you and I lived. And again, this feels more like reality than, yes, movies from the 80s, which tend to have bigger hair and bigger everything. Again, my compliment to this movie, and I think it's true of all of them, is that they play with iconography of the decade without slipping into parody. And, yeah, we'll just get it in little details. When Moira finally catches up like 40 minutes later when they get back to this plot about the buried apocalypse. You know, she's going to have this really thin camera that I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that <laughs> that sleek style. It looks like an iPhone now, but that was a camera. I don't know how she's going to get exposure in an underground cult. Yeah, you have to buy the flash bulbs and like screw them on. And- yeah. Yeah, it does take us a while to get to that because we're going to spend a lot of time catching up with a lot of mutants. Yeah, they make a big deal out of Days of Future Past. Like, it's the 10th anniversary of, I guess, mutants being discovered when Magneto presented himself and tried to take over DC. I guess I never realized that mutants weren't out until then. 
and there's some retconning going on too because now Mystique is declared the hero. She did shoot Magneto in the neck, but let's not forget she was the one who came there to do the assassination and everybody knew it. The president knew it. President Nixon was well aware of her plan, but now everybody sees her as the hero of the day. I don't know that people were aware of that. Yes, the people on the inside know the truth. That's all the case with all stories of all times. But how it's perceived by the general public, the history lesson being taught on overheads by Ali Sheedy is that, yes, this woman saved us from a horrible future and we owe her gratitude. And so she's the good guy and Magneto's the bad guy. And that's the way that they understand it in 83. And Ali Sheedy, she's the teacher of Scott Summers' history class, and she's unrecognizable. I didn't know until I was reading after the fact. I'm like, that's Ali Sheedy? And then I went back and squinted and I could kind of see it. I'm guessing she's only here as an 80s relic. Breakfast Club, my wife called this out like during the film. She's like, oh, so this is Breakfast Club, Ali Sheedy. She she recognized her right away. I had to go to IMDb to confirm it, though, because I agree. She's not recognizable. <laughs> yeah, I, I recognized her right away. And I do feel like yeah, it's here basically to, if you're going to go to a high school in the 80s, why not go with a character that we associate with a high school in the 80s? I mean, it could have been Molly Ringwald, but she's still working. So <laughs> they, they got who they could get. I was wondering how much are they going to recreate that Cyclops scene from X-Men Origins Wolverine? I wasn't going to go back to that movie to confirm it because that movie's awful. But <laughs> I, I feel like they stick kind of close. I remember a big laser beam going through the school or something in that movie. And they kind of do that here. Yeah, but here they have him like running to the bathroom and... I remembered reading the novelization of the first X-Men film, which had a lot of the stuff from the script, the original script, and it was like, that was pretty much what happened to Cyclops there, too. The difference being, it was at prom and not just in the middle of the day, but yeah, he ran to the bathroom, his eyes exploded, he had to be taken to Xavier, so I felt like Singer was finally getting to film a scene he'd wanted to do way back in 2000. And he's got more money to play with. I mean, keep in mind, that first film was highly compromised. They did what they could with the money that they had, but it was clearly struggling. Here, I do feel like they have a lot of money, and the effects, eh, good and bad. I feel like there are moments that where this movie is visually appealing and moments where it's not. What's interesting is there's no butterfly effect to history. By working mutants into our timeline, there hasn't been a radical shift. You look at Watchmen... And it says that by having mutants in Vietnam early, basically it created a timeline in which Nixon could change the laws and still be president by 1985. Here, everything is happening exactly as we would remember it. You know, Reagan is still president, but it is just that there's also these little moments where people are aware of mutants and that they're sort of celebrities. Okay, so you're talking about the butterfly effect for actual world politics because I'm trying to think about the continuity of all these films going back to 2000 and it is messed up. Like, I, oh, you know, don't do that. That's I know because I just want to know who Moira Metagert's plastic surgeon is because she hasn't aged in 20 years. Yeah, none of them have. I actually did do some math trying to figure out how old they should be in the first X-Men movie. Assuming that took place, I'm being generous by setting it in 2000 when it felt like it was a few years in the future from 2000. But yeah, I mean, Professor Xavier should be in his early 50s based upon first class, but he should be 
in his early 40s based upon the first X-Men film. Mystique, I give a pass to because she's a shapeshifter. I mean, Magneto's in his 50s. I mean, he was yeah. 10 years old in like 1944, 45 in a concentration camp. The power of magnets keep you young. I mean, Scott Summers, who we see here in the school, Havoc's going to return to this film. His older brother, who was a teenager in the 60s, and now he's got a teenage brother in the 80s. Like Havoc should be 40, but yet the actress who plays Havoc's and Scott's mother is 40. So he's the same age as his mother. Cyclops should be 10 years old in 1983 if it was the James Marsden Scott Summers. So yeah, some of it actually goes. Jean Grey should be 19. It actually fits. Storm, I could read this actress as 17 even though she's 24. Angel, I'm just going to say this isn't Warren Worthington <laughs> the third because he's never called Warren. So I guess there's just... Every angel with wings, X-Men First Class, X-3, this one, they're all called Angel. You guys are doing something that never would have occurred to me. I would never try to connect that first trilogy with these movies. Bride Singer wants us to. Yeah, didn't you see Days of Future Past? <laughs> I don't feel like it's the same thing. And I, I, I mean, it's obvious by this point, by just the discrepancies you're pointing out, it should be obvious to everyone. Like Star Trek, they just created an alternate timeline where they can go and do their own thing and not worry about what Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner did. That's what I'm assuming here. Yeah, as long as Brett Ratner never did it. Patrick Stewart, none of that counts. Except it does, because this movie has scenes that we'll talk about that were only there to lead into next year's X-Men Wolverine movie, which has Patrick Stewart playing this Charles Xavier, and Singer has said he's looking forward to continuing the saga. Jacob, you joked, wouldn't it be nice to have an X-Men movie in the 2000s? Yeah, and Singer wants all the old cast to play them. Patrick Stewart's back. They already played them in the 2000s. That's the joke. Like, we already have that film. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what that would look like, and... Uh, again, I, I don't think it's helpful to make these comparatives. If you're going to do that, yes, I can see why this movie would be very, very frustrating for you. They're retelling a story that we know, but contextualizing it with the freedom that allows them to go where they need to for the story. I'm not going to get hung up on it, but no. it's one of now playing things to point out the continuity flaws, and there's a lot. I, I mean, we could do an entire two-hour episode of X-Men <laughs> continuity flaws, believe me. And so I'm just going to say they're rampant. And the X-Men films, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, X-Men films don't care. They're like Honey Badger of movie franchises. I, my judgment of this film is not going to be based on whether or not the characters are the right age. What continuity allows you to do is build a world in which you can imagine that it exists. And when that's disrupted, you can no longer feel like it's this enveloping world. Well, it's not. It's a story and they're changing the story to fit what they want it to for this movie. And so what we're going to get is I think the story of this movie is the forming of two different tribes. Something we've seen before, usually between Magneto and Charles. Yeah, that's every X-Men film. But this time, it will be Apocalypse forming the, quote, bad team, and Charles, yeah, getting new students like Cyclops and, and building up his school. He looks happy here. I do have to say, McAvoy is one of the better performers in this movie. He, he does still feel like someone that is rejuvenated, that even though he is decided to stop taking that medicine from the last movie and be reduced to a wheelchair, I feel like he's much happier than any time seeing him since the early 60s. Well, that's because he's got some, like, pastel V-necks and those Miami Vice sports coats to wear around. He, <laughs> he is 
really, uh, you know, going back to that 60s one where he's hitting on women and he, he does seem to be back in that ladies man mode, which is going to be a big deal when he finds out about Moira later on. I think when Matthew Vaughn hired all the actors for First Class, he did an amazing job. And McAvoy and Fassbender are just two of the strongest actors to ever grace the X-Men franchise. And McAvoy does great here. And yeah, I think Xavier, he has a different dream than we've ever seen him have before. He's not just creating a school for mutants. He views taking his parents' house, that mansion, and turning it into a full-fledged campus where humans and mutants come together to learn. That's Never been stated in any X franchise I've ever seen. Comic, cartoon, movie. But he wants a co-ed campus, basically. Yeah, no, I think that that shows his utopian ideas for the world itself. By doing it on a university level, it will teach people around the world that mutants and humans can coexist in harmony. And again, he's the utopian. He's the Martin Luther King. Uh, We're going to get to Eric eventually, and he's... He's never going to have that opinion. He will remain cynical because of his childhood experience that humans will always prejudge and and show prejudice, and he's just not having it. They are two different, distinct polar opposites as characters, even though sometimes they have alliances and are friends. But Charles has a friend in Hank, and this was something I never got from the original trilogy, that Beast was a part of the team, that he built all the tech, that he's the guy that will build the plane and do all of the hard work, really. In X3, they did say he was one of the founding members and he was one of the scientists, but, and he built Cerebro before Charles ever showed up. So I think this fits. Yeah, and he's the one who invented that drug that let Charles walk for a while, even though it inhibits your ex-mutant gene, and he's still on that drug. He doesn't want to be Beast. You mean he doesn't want to undergo the six-hour makeup process? (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's what it has to be. Ultimately, he's going to have a scene with his ex-girlfriend, Jennifer Lawrence. Real life and movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's super awkward where they're like, hey, it's great to see you and be in this movie. Why aren't you wearing the blue makeup? Oh, I don't want to. Me neither. I mean, that's what it really (laughs) feels like, of like two ex-lovers awkwardly re-meeting on the set and trying to just why they don't want to be these characters anymore. What's funny is there's a scene in the Rogue Cut that wasn't in the main movie where Beast and Mystique almost finally consummate their relationship until Mystique, like, makes Hank feel bad about his own looks and then he just walks away frustrated. (laughs) But that was fresh in my mind seeing them as like, well, the last time Mystique was here, Hank almost boned her and now... But this goes back to first class. That was the whole tension there is Magneto's like, no, I think you're beautiful how you are, Mystique, all blue and naked. And Hank never wanted to be the beast. He was always trying to suppress that. I, You know, you talk about the, the Professor X and Magneto dichotomy. You also have that in this relationship between Beast and Mystique, which I like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Neither wants to be blue or or both <laughs> see that as a color. That's a problem. But Mystique has found someone that is blue, proudly blue. And it's another favorite. Uh, someone I think that was a real highlight of X2 Returns Nightcrawler. Here, we went to East Berlin in the 80s, and Nightcrawler and Angel were in a literal cage match, where the weirdest thing about that entire club was the announcer's mustache. (laughs) Hey, don't forget the blob. I'm pretty sure that's who that was getting beat up by Mm -hmm. Angel at the beginning. Yeah, he had a fighting scene in Origins, the first Wolverine, I should say. I I think he lost that fight. He's losing this fight. He's just a loser X-Men. Sometimes... 
he can be a mutant and still not be cool. And I think that's true for Blob. But <laughs> but Nightcrawler, I, you know, I got to say, Cody Smith McPhee's take on this is really sweet. He is one of my favorite of the new mutants. You know, there's just something awkward about him that just feels very teenage. It's that flock of seagulls haircut he gets later on. I think it somewhat is the the haircut, that the aspirations to be hip while still being uh, blue and devilish looking and thin and awkward and just not certain about your powers. You see it in this fight. He's not here to fight. He was just thrown into a cage. It's Angel that thinks of himself as a badass. This guy is just trying to land on a bar that's not electrified. Yeah, it is weird thinking about Angel being the badass after that last stand. Warren Worthington third, you know, rich kid, Angel. Now th- this one's kind of badass. He's got the, the curly hair metal hair going on. I actually like this scene a lot here in this fighting cage. I like, you know, Angel, he's... After he beats up the blob, he's like ticking off who he's beat with the claws on his wings. And this just feels fun. I don't understand why electricity blocks your mutant powers. We don't only see it with Nightcrawler. We're going to see it later with Jean Grey, which seems kind of weird. But whatever. I'll give it that conceit that, you know, two men in or one man leave. I'd love to see Beyond Thunderdome with X-Men. I couldn't not be taken back, though, to the first X-Men film. This is how we were introduced to Wolverine, if you remember, was cage fighting and basically he was unbeatable they think angel is unbeatable here i think angel is killing people blob looked pretty cut up he's got those hooks this is a new thing for angel he's got these like talons on his wings so i think he's perfectly down with homicide from the beginning but i do like this angel he's listening to metallica later on he's kind of a hair metal mutant but this little sparring i can't call it a fight but the sparring with nightcrawler is very fun. And yeah, Mystique comes in in a, man, gorgeous dress. And then she changes to some 80s kind of, you know, club in clothes too with the loose t-shirt and the coat. And she's there to rescue him for reasons. Well, I think this is what she's doing now. She is rescuing mutants. We'll find out later that Storm like looks up to her. I think she's going and fighting for the oppressed. Magneto, who... That always feels like his role. He's gone into hiding, but she's going around and saving these mutants that are being exploited. Yeah, I don't believe that she can align with Charles anymore after all that has happened. But she can recognize what he's doing as being beneficial for people that are lost. And she was a little girl lost when she met Charles. She was really the first one to grow up in that school under his tutelage. I think that she sees that as a positive, and so she's basically helping a kid that would otherwise be trapped in a circus or just be, yeah, beat to a pulp here. Yeah, she doesn't care about Angel. (laughs) She leaves him to be, but yeah, she does go for Nightcrawler. It's not like she wouldn't care about him. It's how can you have compassion for someone whose whole idea is my celebrity is based on, yeah, tearing apart other mutants. We do find out from Angel, like when he's fighting Nightcrawler, he's like, look, we got to fight or they'll kill us both. And we see those guards you know, cock their machine guns, just as he says that. That may be, but the overwhelming impression I have from this angel is that he is in love with the celebrity that cage matches have given him, that he is strutting around prideful. Cock of the walk, would you say? (laughs) Yeah. I may not have wanted this as my destiny, but I'm really good at it, so I'm going to play up to it. And so he's degrading himself, and no, Mystique is happy to turn up the juice and fry his wings, she's going to help the defenseless one, and that is Kurt Nightcrawler. But later on, they go and they see Caliban, who is like a mutant trafficker, and he calls her Mystique. Travel agent. 
Yeah. I didn't understand anything with Caliban. Yeah, he's from the comic. He's from he's... the comic, but I don't understand anything. I don't know why he's in this movie. I don't know what any of this does for the film. Cut it all. I took him as just, have you seen those mobster movies where you go to some seedy guy who's going to give you a fake passport? That's what I took this guy as. He's going to give you fake papers and maybe buy you a, a plane ticket. He's mercenary. I don't see him as like mystique out there to help people. No, he, he's he not. likes money. No, right, he does it for profit, too. But he is running a system that is helping mutants go where they need, that the uh, human society would not allow. This guy, when Apocalypse shows up, will sell out any mutant if Apocalypse had money. Right. He'll tell yeah. you where any of them are. He also refers to himself in the third person, I think, which yes. was really confusing. And I, that's a bad trait to have. Don't do that. That's weird. It was because I'm like, who's Caliban then? Are we going to meet Caliban? Is Caliban yes, a big puppet master? <laughs> I got it. I mean, it, it is a little jarring, but I mean, it just feels like this is the cantina scene or something. Like, it was a scene where mutants congregate, and this guy feels like he's in control and profiting, and Psylocke is hanging in the background. We'll learn a little bit more about her later. A little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but put a bathing suit on her. But it's kind of sparse, though. There's not a lot of mutants. You say the cantina scene, I think of a densely packed alien area we got Psylocke, Caliban, Kurt, a photographer, and like two background extras. It's it's pretty empty. The point is that Mystique is taking Kurt to the school and dropping him off. And that wasn't her plan. She was not going to go to the school. It's only when Caliban gives her information about Eric that she finally decides to return to the school she thought she'd never go to. She is not taking people to Charles's. She's not been back since the 70s. Huh. Well, then I don't understand what she's doing. Exactly. She's <laughs> dropping him off at Caliban's and saying, your problem now, I'm leaving. Oh. She's not recruiting for the school. Okay, so she's basically, she's the one putting up the money so that mutants can get passports and go where they'd like. Yeah. Okay, well, I understand it. And she's getting that money from being a mercenary, but... I don't understand how helping Kurt is a mercenary job unless... No, I, I don't think mercenary. She's just helping him out. Yeah, I think it's charity. I think that she is doing uh, the work that she thinks is right, but not in line with Charles. Okay, so that explains something. I thought she was always just bringing them to Charles, but no, she does just very clearly say, I'm only buying a ticket for one, and she wasn't going to go, and then she did go. And the, and the reason is, that's right, Caliban says, I know what happened to your friend Eric. And Eric is in Poland. All right, I'm going to say I don't like this plot development. We have seen so many movies with Magneto now. He's in almost all of them, right? And in each one, he's building a mutant revolution. I mean, you know that Geico ad? It's, if you're Magneto, you're building a revolution. That's what you do. And here, he's decided to settle down, have a wife and kid. It was very X-Men Origins Wolverine to me. He's even living in the woods. Yeah, I'll say this with Magneto. Here's my problem, is they want to keep, like, his story was so good in first class. Like, I really felt his struggle. And I think they want to keep cashing in on that kind of dramatic arc for him. But it... At some point, he's just got to be the bad guy. And the fact that now he's living in the woods, he's married, he's got a kid. This is 10 years after, like, he was the w most wanted mutant. He's 
I do like that he's working like in a steel factory. That does make sense for Magneto. But I feel like he would be more of a loner. Like when we saw him in first class, he was hunting Nazis in South America. Like I feel like he would still be doing that kind of work. It, that the fact that he's settled down after becoming the most wanted mutant does seem a little weird. I like it. I actually think that it it makes sense for a midlife crisis, and that's what this looks like. It was like I did all of this in my youth, and it got me. Yeah, almost destroying the world and creating a race of robots that would destroy me. Now everyone is looking for me. What can I do? He finds a woman that he can be honest with. He says, the day that I met you, I told you who I was. And she accepted that. I'm not sure how, but that was a scene that I'd like to know. Uh, but it's kind of sweet. And if it is like X-Men Origins Wolverine, it's a much better, less rushed version of that. There's something very natural about the idea that, yeah, they have this daughter that communes. She, her mutant power seems to be she can commune with nature and is playing with deer when we see her. And it looks like a nice pastoral life. It looks like he has finally found a place for himself that is not so anguished. Of course, that will be taken from him. It's a strange development for him. I don't know how you go from, I'm going to kill everyone to save the future, I'm a revolutionary, I'm fighting for mutants my whole life, to, eh, you know, I'm just gonna settle down and lead a quiet life. Retiree Magneto is not appealing, and I'm glad it doesn't last too long. I Don't get me wrong, I like Fassbender's acting in these scenes, and I like his wife and kid, I like what's portrayed. It just is not true to the character we've seen in six other movies. Here's my problem, is that I think I could go for a whole film of Fassbender as Magneto, just like hiding out in the woods with his family. He's a good enough actor to pull that off. But I know where all this is going. Like this, I was shocked. Like when, when things go bad for Magneto and his family, they, there were people like gasping. I'm like, come on, I've been waiting 20 minutes for that to happen. Yeah, it's a little slow to get there. It's a little obvious a development. I was happy, though, because in the trailers, you get Magneto going, they killed my family. I thought they were going to kill Quicksilver. I really thought that's what he was referring to. I thought it was a re reference to the Holocaust that we've seen a couple of times in these films. Yeah, that's definitely what I thought. He acted like it was something new that happened, and so I thought he was going to find out Quicksilver was his son and Quicksilver was going to die. Quicksilver was awesome in that last movie. I didn't want to see him die. I have no attachment to this generic wife and animal-controlling daughter, so I shed no tears when they're impaled on an arrow. That is weird that it, it accidentally hit them, but I was waiting for that because I knew that's where it was going. I knew the kid was dead. I didn't know about the wife, but I knew as soon as they did that close-up of her feeding the deer, I'm like, well, she's dead. Mm -hmm. Well, tragedy is knowing what the outcome's going to be and not wanting it to be true, wishing against what you know to be fact. And yes, of course, he's going to lose his family, which is not to say that this scene is lacking in emotional impact. No, I mean, the, what surprised me is that I'm actually going with it. Like when he's sitting there hugging his dead wife and child and I was waiting for that lock and I they set up that lock and that's the one piece of metal that I knew was in that forest scene. And when he uses that to kill all these cops, I'm going for that, that, that subtle rage that he has. And then he makes an explicit rage by yelling into the heavens, which uh, it ruined the moment for me. Unfortunately, now playing has made me very sensitive to shouting to the heavens. But yet I like that he's not just roaring rage. He's feeling like... Fate keeps putting him, fate, God, whatever he believes in. He doesn't really, you know, well, he's Jewish, so yeah, God. He feels like it's just putting him on the same path again and again. He tried to be peaceful. He tried to settle down, and God made him 
kill those people. And the fact that he did it with a locket, it reminded me a little bit. Do you guys remember Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy that has the arrow that went through all those people? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Magneto uses the locket like that. That was a replay of the coin. I mean, it was that was the, one of the great scenes of first class was him, you know, first being told to move that coin and his mother getting killed and then, you know, using that coin at the end to kill Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I, I see that. But when it's just Kevin Bacon, it's one thing. When it's zipping through everybody's neck at high speed before they can even react, it's it becomes something else. I didn't mind the screaming up. I only thought of Stuart and his hatred for that. I like what he says, though. No, yeah, I thought this scene really worked. I had no problem with this. And this is coming from someone that usually complains about that. But it's about the dramatics of it. Want to be very clear. Tropes happen again and again. And there's nothing you can do except do them well. And hopefully they won't feel cliched. What typically happens with the screaming to the heavens is it's an attempt to show off beefcake. It's an attempt to show manliness. They're not really crying for the ones they lost. Those people were set up to die to make the hero have a complex that justifies their bloodlust. In this case, I genuinely believe Magneto's pain. It is quite evident that when he's screaming at God, why are you trying to make me this way, that he has reached a point that he did not want to come to. Whereas typically, I feel like this was the excuse the hero can use now to do what he's always wanted to do. And that is not the case. And if you're feeling that, I, I'm going to say it's all because of Fassbender. If, yes, If it's correct. Hugh Jackman screaming in the heavens like he does in Origins, it's not going to work. If the performance were not as good, and if we hadn't had, there were only few, but if we hadn't had those quiet pastoral moments convincingly, you're right. I would not believe that the loss would have been a problem because this movie is stacked with storylines and who cares about these people? Let's move on. You could take that attitude. We care because, dramatically speaking, the little moments that we have had with them were impacting. And again, I tend to be on Fassbender's side in all of these films. And that's important because he is usually a pseudo-villain, but I I definitely go with him here. He didn't want to be put in this situation, and he is. I did not find the scenes with the family to be impacting. I found, honestly, this movie is slow as hell to start. And the more we spent with him and his wife in the least interesting of storylines, I really found myself bored. I was like, can we please get on with it? Can we please get to some X-Men action instead of just all of this maudlin reminiscing? Here's what I would say to that. If you have enjoyed the character turn of seeing the person least likely to settle down become a family man, if if that doesn't intrigue you in any way, then I suppose these scenes aren't very satisfying. To me, that revelation was one of the few times where I felt the movie had surprise. This movie, by and large, repeats beats from things it's already done. There's not a whole lot of risk that is taken here. This subplot feels like them trying to do something they have never done in an X-Men movie, and that's why I think I'm applauding it. And I feel that character turn isn't valid. You can do shocking things by completely betraying a character anytime. That doesn't make it enjoyable to watch. So, no, when the family dies, I'm like, okay, we're getting on with it a little bit. I've seen this movie twice, and both times, the first 45 minutes, I would use the word a chore. Yeah, it's too long. Yeah, this film's too long. It's not at the beginning for me, though. I- I've liked this globetrotting scene with all the different mutants catching up with them. 
And some of these developments are fine. Some don't work so well. The problem is, is that we're catching up with people. It's been 10 years. It's good to do all of that. But then you want the movie to get going. The truth is, that's just all pre-stuff before the movie does the building of the tribes. I mean, act two is really act one. It's like people lining up with, are you going to go Apocalypse? Are you going to go Xavier? And that feels like that should be happening in the first 40 minutes, not in the middle of the movie. The middle of the movie is where you fight. The problem seems to be that we have so many characters to work in for introductory scenes. By the time you're finished reintroducing them, we want something. And the truth is, then that's when they got to get the plot going. And so... Yeah, I mean, we we didn't even talk about Jean Grey meeting Cyclops and their clumsy, awkward relationship at the beginning. I mean, that that's played like an, an 80s rom-com or an 80s teen comedy. No, there's nothing comedic about their meeting. In fact, she's a bitch. They try to... I don't know that they try to. They I, do. There's, I read your mind. There's not much there. and Blowing up the tree. Well, yeah, my, I don't like this Jean Grey. Listen, I'm the expert on 80s rom-coms, and this, sir, is no 80s rom-com. <laughs> it's a romance. I don't... Yes. Let's leave the com out of it. It yes. is a young adult romance that may evoke memories of teen movies from the 80s or not did you see her in the one scene and i don't know why they had her doing this but when cyclops is demonstrating his powers and blowing apart charles's favorite tree i I did like that little moment gene gray is standing off to the side looking like the lead character from brave with that archery equipment yeah she was shooting a bow and arrow i don't know why i guess to set up why there's a target there for cyclops (laughs) apparently the actress is on game of thrones i don't watch that show so maybe that's some kind of reference to her character in that show or yes maybe it's just a trope to remind you that's what young women do in action movies anymore hunger games yeah (laughs) uh, one thing that struck me about these kids And it's a compliment, although it might not sound like one, is that they're really strange looking. Like, he doesn't go for CW generically photogenic kids uh, for these young parts. That everyone has a real awkward look. And I think it enhances that idea that they may be handsome, but they're not conventionally handsome. Like Yeah, no, I when I'm looking at Jean Grey, I'm like, this is the one that's going to start a love triangle between Cyclops and Wolverine later. She's, yeah, it's not conventional beauty. I'll, I'll be nice and say that. Yeah, that, that, that is very polite. She reminded me a lot of that actress who was in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. She kind of like the Meryl Streep look like. This is what she was reminding me of here, Sophie Turner. I... I'm fine with her looks. I'm not fine with her acting. I think that she is really bad. And Jennifer Lawrence is phoning it in. I do not have much positive to say outside of Storm and Rose Byrne positive about the actresses in this movie. And I think if you're casting Jean Grey because you want an awkward looking girl, perfect. But again, Vaughn hired the best actors. I don't feel Singer's done that. What I notice about both her and Scott is that they don't feel ready to lead. They don't feel like they could run this franchise. And that's my compliment to it, is that he's allowing them times to not seem uh, confident, to not seem good. And that gives them somewhere to go for the future of the franchise. But here, you would think, Again, my go-to is if you ever watch the channel, The CW, all their shows are geared towards young adults and everyone from the stars to the extra in the background 
are perfect looking people that always project this wholesomeness. And that is not this word. I can't wait for Hunky Jughead when they do their Archie show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've heard they're going back to Riverdale. It's coming. Yes. yes. But it, my point is that I think that it works in the sense that all these kids feel like they have a lot to learn, a lot to grow into. Nobody here feels ready by the end of it to lead the team. And I think that that's the right impulse for an ongoing franchise. I'll agree with that to a point. Again, I just, I wish that I liked any of these people. I wish that there was something about them that was a hook. I like James Marston and Famke Jensen a lot better than I like Ty Sheridan and Sophie Turner. These people are bland. I mean, let's be clear. Those weren't better actors. They were just given roles where they were more confidently in charge. No, they were better actors, too. No. I really believe that. And I, and I'm saying that about James Marsden is really saying something, I know. Yes. <laughs> Come on, now. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this. I don't know if I like any of the new characters besides New Storm. Pizza Dog? Pizza Dog and Storm. Yeah, th- <laughs> those are the only new characters that are introduced in this film that I, I go with. The rest, Nightcrawler. Yeah. Let's not... Nightcrawler, you, yes. Nightcrawler yeah. was good. I, I don't know how many dramatic scenes he has, but I do like his character. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind seeing him return in the next. I'm exactly there with you. I would like to see a Quicksilver Storm Nightcrawler movie and just take Gene and Scott and flush them. The actors, the roles, the characters. We've seen this. We've done this. And we've done it better. How about we give them some room to develop that further down the line? We'll all agree that this is not where it should be uh, yet. But who knows what it will be in the future. Now, Storm is saddled. I don't know. You guys are saying you like her. I know that I don't like her scenes. I know that she is saddled with the most painful moments in this entire movie is she's the one that drew the short straw and says you're the one that has to acclimate apocalypse to the modern day world (laughs) and this stuff is bad i have a question for the resurrection of apocalypse we get moira mctaggart she's on some special cia mission i guess where they know about weird mutant cults and she's going to investigate this secret tunnel yeah is she just out investigating mutants in general I mean, she acts very confused when she interrupts a resurrection ritual. I was confused because of the editing of this film. Like, she's down there taking pictures, and then the next thing you know, they cut, and there's people, like, praying to Apocalypse or praying to something. I'm like, she didn't notice them? They don't notice her? They're, like, ten feet apart, I think. Here's more confusion than that. Is it her fault that Apocalypse is alive? yes. Yes, that's my question, Stuart. She left the barn door open, and now we got Apocalypse, basically. And why hasn't any of the cultists who have read all the hieroglyphics and want this guy to come back, why didn't they put this in the sun? They built a tunnel. Like, all they had to do was leave the door open like yeah. did. But no. This, yeah, Moira McTaggart seems like the bad guy here for leaving the door open. Yeah, it's not a great way to use her. I can't decide if she's the one who left the sun in. It's the way it's filmed. I don't know if she obviously didn't come in the same door everyone else did. And there's more than one source of light. Is it because she did leave the door open that yes. she activates it? I don't know that for a fact. I know she left a door open. I don't know that that's where the sun came from. But no matter what, you can't really blame her. The fact that there's this giant 
pyramid tip solar powered that somehow is still wired to apocalypse and another great 3d scene is when we go through all this rubble and get to clown face underneath it's really uh, a nice cgi trip but yeah he does wake up i think he slept way too long through the movie i wish he'd woken up earlier and then I was worried when he comes up and he doesn't speak any modern language and he's almost hit by a car and he's like, what? I'm like, oh, God, no, no, let's not have a fish out of water thing. He's fondling that Rolls Royce hood ornament. Again, he's looking at some vendor that's selling gold. I really did wonder if he had some weird gold fetish going on. But <laughs> There was a big, like, we buy gold sign yes, in the background. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a product placement. It is remind me of the 80s. I mean, it is those fish out of water comedies like Harry and the Hendersons and <laughs> E.T. dressing up for Halloween or actually more accurately, Mac and me going to McDonald's. Splash, you know, you always have the fantastical creature that is enchanted and bewildered by what we take for granted as the modern world. That worked for comedy in the 80s. Dramatically speaking, this is a terrible way to bring a villain that we're supposed to fear into the plot. I mean, he looks, he can't recover from how ridiculous he looks in this movie. I had two thoughts upon seeing Oscar Isaac in this makeup. One, young Frankenstein, just... (laughs) Peter Boyle, the whole time. I don't think he meant for it to be a comedic performance, but it's very funny just watching his face, watching him take it all in. But I think the design of the creature... Have you guys ever seen one of Michael Mann's first movies? It's called The Keep from the early 80s. Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, it's so boring, I could never get through it. But the creature in it is amazing looking. And I think it's intentional because Ian McKellen is in that movie and it is about Nazis accidentally unearthing an ancient creature from a tomb. And I, I think that must have been an idea that Singer had of like, let's do the keep right. Let's Let's bring that creature design into this. Here's where they messed up Apocalypse's outfit. It's practical, and Oscar Isaacs moves like a Michelin man. When you watch Iron Man, that entire outfit is CGI. It looks real, but Robert Downey Jr. is standing there in a sweatsuit with motion capture dots on it, and it allows him free range of movement, and he can move like you'd expect him to. Anytime Oscar Isaac has to move his arms and try to act with anything other than his voice— or anytime there's a full body head to toe shot of Apocalypse, he looks re goddamn ridiculous. Well, I do wonder if this is because Thanos, Marvel beat them with Thanos, because they're pretty similar. They're both blue, big, big, bulky guys. Like, I wonder if they felt like they had to do a radical redesign so they weren't accused of just doing what Marvel is setting up. No, it looks a lot like the comic book character, honestly. He's in more armor. The comic book character has like eight-pack abs and big packs, but I think that it's pretty close to the comics. He always felt more mechanical to me in the comics, and we're going to see Apocalypse do that. He's going to give people armor and, I don't know, do a circuit board in Angel's face later on. I'm not sure what he's doing, but people grumbled when they first saw this, and it's kind of ridiculous looking. Whatever, it, whether it looks like the comic or not, I, when he's walking around in those big heavy robes early on here when he's first resurrected, it's not great. It could look scary if there were mood lighting, but the fact that he's walking around in bright yes. daylight and then his powers, like then when people attack him, he's going to, you know, use some dust to decapitate people and then put one guy in a wall. 
I see. I like that. It feels very comic booky to me. And they go for it here, like having that guy become part of the wall. That's kind of stuff because this apocalypse character, the way they're portraying him, is just so overwrought. I I like that there seems to be some levity, some ridiculousness with the way he's attacking these different characters. It's a weird thing. I mean, he beheads people with sand. This is a hard PG-13 movie, I think. But he also just has one absorbed into a wall, but he's still alive in the wall. And he's like, you don't feel it, do you? Now you feel it. I'm like, <laughs> what does he feel? Yeah. Like, I'm turned into a wall? I remember there was a Hellraiser movie. I think it was Hellraiser 7 where people were, like, turned into couches or something like that. It- There's Hellraiser 3 where Pinhead is part of a giant stone pillar. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm, I'm literally people, there's like a cult of people that want to be dead and they get turned into furniture or something. I believe it's called Deader. We'll have to watch that series again because I don't remember. Yeah, Kari Wurz in it. I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but whenever you have me thinking about Hellraiser 7, you have me thinking about the wrong things. <laughs> I think that this was the wrong choice. And just to point out, this guy who gets sucked into the wall is the one who called him Clownface. Yes. If you're going to reintroduce him, it's fine to laugh at him a little bit. You know, ha ha ha. It is funny to see this ridiculous guy, but then scare us. Make us feel like, oh my God, okay, this guy is a threat. His cred's completely ruined. For the rest of this movie, he just looks like young Frankenstein pushing people into the ground, into walls, and not taking his role very seriously as a major villain. So tell me, what does Apocalypse want? What is his plan? What is he here for? And why does he insist upon remaking all of his henchmen? I just find his actions and inactions both to be quite ridiculous. I like his speech making, but dude needs to shut up and take some action. If he's all powerful, he moves really ponderously. Yeah, come on, Arnie. Power! Ultimate power! Or is it unlimited? Unlimited. Unlimited power! He already has it! Well, it does feel like he gets more. I mean, he'll have a run-in with Professor X later where it seems like he gets even more power. But yeah, what's weird to me is there's some gobbledygook said about like how he always has his four horsemen and they always, what, eventually betray him? And whatever civilization he built up gets destroyed and he has to start all over again. Like that's, I heard something like that said, so he doesn't seem to be very successful at whatever he's trying to do. I didn't understand it that way. I took it to mean that at one point in time, he saw the world as a reflection of himself. And to come back into this world, he sees people worshiping false gods. I don't think he really has a plan at first. I think he's just depressed. He wants a new pyramid to live in. This was my place, and now it's the 80s. And I guess a lot of people felt that way. I don't know. But (laughs) it is not the 60s idealism. It's a place of plastic and false gods. And so, yeah, he's going to build his four horsemen to try and regain it. But it won't be until he really has Eric again, and Eric is talking to Charles, that he realizes the potential to wipe the slate clean. Well, come on. Let's look at who he picks for his horseman. The first is Storm, who he realizes a mutant when she, what, causes a little tornado so she could steal some fruit or something or some money from a vendor? She's a pickpocket. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I mean, that's Cairo has plenty of them. I think that that was a right choice. This character was originally from South Africa, right? They've changed it that she's Egyptian. Actually, strangely, this origin is the closest we've ever gotten to the comic book backstory, which, like a lot of Marvel characters, is a little confusing. But she was Kenyan, but born in New York and moved to Cairo just like at six months old. 
And in Cairo, she actually was a thief for a little bit. But then after that, she did move to the Serengeti and was worshipped as a rain goddess and a nudist for a while before she joined the X-Men. So it's a little bit twisty-turvy, but yeah, this is pretty close. I never got the sense that Halle Berry hung out at the pyramids. I'll, I'll put it that way. No. Yeah, no, she was doing a South African, I'm at the tip of it, half-ass accent. Is that what that was? It was what it was trying to be. I do find it interesting that basically, you remember in X3 when all of those middle-level mutants came together and kind of rallied together and they're all telling Magneto, you're like the only level four in here and things like that. I found it interesting that these mutants are basically level two and three mutants. Storm cannot control lightning. Storm cannot strike a toad. But <laughs> Apocalypse is going to give them a level up and then they're able to do it. Yeah, that is what's kind of fun about the transformation is that they seem to be getting better. That when he gets to Angel, we get that heavy metal guitar riffing because he's turning him into metal. He gets metal wings that shoot daggers and he's even cooler than he was before. Yeah, Angel has a broken wing at this point. They're still fried from that fight with Nightcrawler. I feel like Angel, when he's transforming into Robo Angel or Archangel, I guess they're calling him. I, he's almost like doing that pose, that Icarus pose from the Led Zeppelin t-shirts. <laughs> uh-huh. It does look like that. And that, I think that's cool. I think that's a fun way to enhance the character. Psylocke? Someone tell me what's up with this chick. She's a purple ninja. She's a ninja. She's a ninja who can use swords as well as what they call psi blades, which is purple energy created from her mind. Okay. We see that because... For reasons I don't recall, maybe there are actual reasons, but Apocalypse and Storm are going to go to Caliban, I guess because he knows where mutants are, so they want to find some cool ones. And yeah, Psylocke is like the bodyguard and pulls out a sword and then Purple Blade. I mean, I kind of got the power. All right, she can make swords out of thin air, lightsabers, if you will, but... She seems to have a bad attitude, like the girl, you just don't approach at the bar. Because it's Elizabeth Munn, yeah. She does have a bad attitude. She had chips on her shoulder that I could not understand, and so... The chip on her shoulder is she thinks she should be a really famous actress, and she's stuck with a barely <laughs> speaking part in X-Men ah, Apocalypse. And, okay, then she's perfectly cast. And I'm saying that about Moon. Psylocke never wanted to be an actress. But I do think that the best thing about casting Olivia Moon here is she makes Jennifer Lawrence and... And the new Jean Grey look like good thespians. <laughs> yes, I know. She, well, maybe she's upset because everyone else is going to get cool armored suits and she's stuck in a purple bathing suit, like a Jane Fonda workout accessory for the rest of this film. Listen, the thing that I love about Olivia Moon in this film, and I do like her in this film, is she is the comic book come to life. I think she was hired for that very reason. Is She's a mixture of Asian and Anglo-Saxon background. And when she puts on that purple outfit, she looks pretty much like she sprung from the pages of a comic. And I'm down with that. I like it when they're true to the source material. The thing I dislike about her is every time she opens her mouth. But that's not often, and so that's not bad. I get it that that's how she looks at the comic. People, there were dudes in their X-Men shirts, like, so excited to see that in the theater, cheering it on. It's just weird when everyone else is going to get an upgrade. Like, again, Angel's going to get metal 
wings, which I think it's hilarious. He's a the horseman of the apocalypse. What's his cool power? He could throw metal feathers. And we're going to see a new helmet built for Magneto out of sand. Like, everyone gets upgrades, but she's got a bathing suit. Hold on now. She does get an upgrade. She was just in, like, a regular street clothes before. She could have had the bathing suit under that. We don't know. We know nothing about her. I couldn't see what joining the team benefited her. That was what I couldn't see. But again, this is a very underdeveloped character, and she has some cool fights, so... I'll give her that, but... She also gets her powers upgraded. She's able to have a side blade initially, but when he's done, she has a more powerful side blade. She I gets mean, a lasso of truth at the end. Yeah, so, so she does get upgraded. These horsemen of the apocalypse, though, we've got Angel, we've got Storm, we've got Psylocke. They're basically there to vamp like they're lost boys. I mean, they couldn't be more 80s than just standing around posturing. Oh, I feel like even when they get Magneto, they're going to stand around on some rocks posturing for, it seems like, half the film. When you look like Apocalypse, you need a posse <laughs> real bad. I mean, you do. I, I get that. He does look like a reject from Kiss. <laughs> and getting Eric is a coup, I think. I mean, by getting someone that is already notorious and feared by the world... I mean, I wouldn't think that Eric would be resigned to just being one of four horsemen in the background. Except they catches him in a vendetta kind of mood, to quote true romance. He's ready to kill a bunch of workers who talk to the police. And I feel this movie really tries to have it both ways with Magneto. In the past, Singer was happy with Magneto as a bad guy, as a murderer. He tried to kill all humans in X2. Here, well, Magneto killed those Polish cops, but he was in a moment of rage and they really did kill his wife and daughter, so that could be seen as justifiable. But when he comes to kill the steel mill workers, Apocalypse is going to stop Magneto from being too bad a guy. Snitches get stitches. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> they, I somewhat agree with you, Arnie. I do feel like by the end of this, they're gonna tell us that Magneto's still redeemable. I haven't felt that way in a while about that character. Just let him be bad. But look, this is the funniest line. He is about to kill all these guys in the steel meal, and Apocalypse and the three horsemen show up, and he like stops mid-speech. Who the fuck are you guys? Like that got a huge laugh. It is honestly almost as good as Wolverine's fuck you in this first class one. It really is good. They gotta use the F-bomb, they choose it well, and... Yeah, Fox will do that when I don't feel we'll ever get that out of Spider-Man's mouth, or Captain America, or Tony Stark's mouth, and Marvel. And Apocalypse gets to push people into the floor, that was, I felt, like, the best use of his strange power to put people in immovable places, but you know, everyone goes under, you can just see some limbs sticking out of the floor. And still wiggling. Yes. Basically, in order to convince Eric, he takes him to Auschwitz so it can be destroyed. This is Ugh. where I really felt like when I originally started, way, way, way back in 2011, I guess it was, when we were starting to review Marvel movies, I remember thinking, man, these people just look weird. They have weird haircuts and outfits, and it's just bizarre to watch a movie where people are walking around without being self-conscious about how stupid they look. and. Having watched so many superhero movies, I've gotten 
used to the idea. It doesn't phase me anymore to see people in these strange outfits. But when these pets show up at Auschwitz walking around, I'm like, you know what? This is weird looking. This doesn't jive that we have these people in this location. It really feels disorienting. And it always felt like there was a reverence for dealing with the Holocaust in previous X-Men yes, films. Yes, This one, the fact that he's going to tear down Auschwitz with super magnet powers... It doesn't feel right. I'll just put it that way. I don't know if Apocalypse ups Magneto's powers. I don't see him do the weird milky eye thing that he does with everyone else when he gives him an upgrade. He tells him. He gives him a speech, at least. I yeah. felt like maybe that was it. I, I don't know if he just unlocks the, a power in his mind or if he really gets an upgrade. But yeah, to see him destroy Auschwitz, right? And then, okay, let's follow this. Magneto from a German concentration camp. While he does, in X2, decide to try to exterminate all the humans, by and large, he's anti-extermination. He's anti-power. He has seen what happens before. He talked about it in First Class, that when they start getting too much power and too much fear, extermination comes. And so you take him back to the origin, to this horrible concentration camp and he destroys it. You know what? I'm okay with that because he was there. He has the rage. It's a weird kind of effect showcase, but okay. But then immediately his plan is now let's be genocidal. It doesn't work for me in that regard. Well, the way I take it is this, is that he thought he had to live with the what history had given him. And by destroying Auschwitz and ultimately wiping mankind off the planet, he realizes you can really start anew. He now realizes fighting humans can be much more decisive, uh, that, that literally he can create a world where it's all mutants. So by destroying Auschwitz, that's just beginning the process of saying everything that's happened before is going away, that he is ultimately tied into the magnetism of the actual Earth. I think that's the enhancement, is that he now can like control poles. And so literally he can just start at the seafloor and just start throwing things out like, just trashing them. Yeah, but mutants are going to die, too. Understand, later on, Apocalypse says, we're going to destroy every structure on the face of the Earth. Wasn't that Kevin Bacon's plan in first class? Like, we'll blow everything up, and whoever lives was meant to live and be strong? Yeah, and that's basically the same plot here. It's not just mutants. Many, many mutants will die. Many, many humans will survive. And whatever is left, though, will be a controllable fearful populace yeah my feelings with magneto is he was always the militant we've always called him the malcolm x between the mlk malcolm x dichotomy he's he's the more militant one but for him to destroy like i feel like he would want to remind humans of how awful they could be and so to destroy this monument i mean you could still go to concentration they're there to serve as a reminder for the worst in humanity I, that that's what bothers me is i feel like he would almost want to rub people's noses in that and for him to just wipe it out and destroy it, 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 I just don't feel like it's in his character. I get it that he will want to take out humans. He is the more militant one. It's just going after a concentration camp. Well, it feels strange because he wasn't there before. Before that, he wanted people to remember. And now what has been unlocked by Apocalypse is the feeling that it's not important to remember. All of that can just literally be erased. I mean, what they're doing... It's even said later by Charles, you're just taking someone's rage and magnifying that. And so they've lost perspective. You know, this isn't a man making a choice. This is someone who is 
powers not have only been augmented, but his anger and his hatred. So we've seen this character before, Batman, you know, in that last Batman v Superman, you know, when you get too militant, you lose perspective about who you are. I don't feel like he is Magneto for the rest of the movie. But is he under an undue influence or is he just rage filled? What he's going to do is the movie's going to gloss over this, but his specific power and Apocalypse, his followers don't seem like when he uses his milky eye power, they become mind controlled. They're there willingly. All four of them are there willingly. They don't talk like people under mind control. And he's going to kill millions and millions of people. The movies won't show us a single body. It acts like the entire world has been evacuated. But he will kill millions, and we're supposed to be told he's redeemable. Well, yeah, we'll get to whether he's redeemable or not by the end. I don't, I'm not thinking about that at this point. But your question is one that I was not able to answer watching the movie. For example, Storm, when she started, she brings Apocalypse into her house and gives him a Coke and a smile. And he says, <laughs> this world needs to be wiped clean. And she's like, what's that? And he's like, oh, it needs to be liberated. Yeah, he changes his wording. I don't think that they realize when they're signing on where it's going to go. And then I do think when he touches them and amplifies them, that they are just his kill bot, mind controlled in a way. Can I just say though, I don't think it's a mind power. I think they're poorly underwritten characters. That too. Well, yes, but I do feel that is the case with Psylocke and Archangel, they are just there to destroy the world. We will find out Storm, she looks up to Mystique. She's got the Che Guevara-style poster of Mystique in her house. Like, so There is something that could bring her back, and I do feel Magneto, yeah, he is angry at this point, and so Apocalypse has given him a means to play out that anger and get revenge, and that's what he's in it for. The parable is simple, and we've seen it many times, is once you give in to anger your potential for destructive behavior greatly increases. And again, it's why I think we won't hold Storm accountable at the end of this either. It's just She doesn't kill millions, though. I, I hear what you're saying. You're keeping a tab on who does what specifically. And I'm just saying they're all part of the same plan, and in that way they're all culpable. But because they joined up not realizing that it was going to be about killing people, we maybe shouldn't judge them for being a part of that plan later i mean we're gonna see around this time xavier's gonna get used by apocalypse look xavier he's done this whole thing where he's found out about moira i didn't realize he wiped her mind of all the events of first class Mm -hmm. and he's trying to reconnect with her now yeah i remember her saying she only remembers a kiss i would have thought she'd have been debriefed though being a cia agent that'd be like So you don't remember being on the beach with the mutants. So you don't remember being embedded with the mutants. But she apparently never even learned about what happened during that period. But she's been brought back to the mansion and they're using Cerebro to find out. They found out that Magneto's come out again. He's killed people. So they're looking for Magneto, which is weird because he's going to have this whole discussion with Magneto why Apocalypse is upgrading everyone's costume. Yeah, what is he? He's like a figure customizer that just can't quit. He's like, Angel, I gave you wings, but now you need a face tattoo. They're literally just standing there. Does Apocalypse have nothing better to do? Well, no, he has nothing to do in this film till the very end. What are they even doing when Charles decides to send the magic power? They're not plotting. They're not moving on anything. They're literally standing there trying to look cool while Apocalypse gives Angel a mohawk because he likes storms. What's so weird is that Magneto's having this whole conversation 
And Apocalypse, who I'm thinking, oh, he is like the ultimate mutant. He's got godlike powers. At first, it doesn't even seem like he knows what's going on because he's so busy dressing his four horsemen. And check yourself before you wreck yourself. Before you start changing other people, let's look at the man in the mirror. You know what I mean? That's what I would say. You could have that song come out yet? No, not yet. But the jacket's there from Beat It. But he could fix himself. I mean, let's just say there's some upgrades cosmetically he could do to make his outfit more flexible. Yeah. <laughs> when he finds out about Professor X here, he, I guess, realizes that someone's talking to Magneto. This is where he does decide to upgrade himself. Like he finds out, oh, here's a power I could really tap into. Right. I found the mutant I want to be that, you know, he's always thinking about the next transference. And I think this is a good development. I do think that we get one of the best scenes in the movie here, right here in the Cerebro, is his like, I'm going to wipe this world clean and I'm going to start with the nukes. And I don't understand until it's over that he's not firing the nukes to go off. Yeah, I did not expect him to go Superman 4. I thought he was going to wipe out the world. I'm like, wow, they're going to have like some big thing where Professor X is going to have to get free of this mind control and like stop all the nukes right before they strike the ground. But that's not where it goes. Like Apocalypse is going to get rid of all the weapons for some reason. Yeah, who would have thought Apocalypse is anti-nuke? Yeah. It's a weird <laughs> statement. Why doesn't he just nuke the Earth? It's a lot faster than what he's going to have Magneto do. <laughs> Reverse the poles. And, yeah. yeah. He does want to keep the mutants alive. And you keep saying a lot of mutants are going to die in the apocalypse. I don't know that that's true. I mean, not if everyone has been told. He does send out a broadcast message saying just everybody know that if you have superpowers, you're going to be fine. Uh, yeah, but we've seen s mutants like, remember Fat from X-Men 3? <laughs> you know, he's still going <laughs> to die. That's okay. <laughs> He's not going to turn skinny and duck and cover under something <laughs> real quick. But again, I do feel like this movie doesn't have a whole lot of real adrenaline or excitement. It's got a lot of action. It's got a lot of apocalypse. But there were a lot of scenes where I felt deeply invested, like got excited. Oh, my God. This was one of them. When the nukes go up, and I think it's just an 80s thing. Like if you grew up, this feels straight out of the day after that TV miniseries. I agree with you, Stuart, because even like Terminator 3, which is kind of a mediocre film, I love the ending of that film where all the nukes go off and you're just seeing mushroom clouds. Yeah, there is something very, if you grew up in the 80s and saw that kind of fear all the time. Yeah, yeah. this is a realization of something. Yeah, it's the most somber Stanley cameo ever. And it's actually Stanley's wife there cameoing too, as they basically look up and hug each other because they think every single being on Earth is going to die. And truthfully, it's Stanley's best acting moment ever. He sells me on the fear. <laughs> I really believed he thought Tony Stark's name was Skank. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering how he got the day off from DJing at the strip club to watch the nukes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's some convoluted continuity trying to figure out Stan Lee's role in all these films. <laughs> Arnie, you saw this movie twice. I definitely didn't catch this. Do you see Havoc die? This event is stopped because Havoc is basically going to do his like fiery hula hoop thing and destroy Cerebro, thus freeing Charles. Yeah, and with that horrible line, wreak Havoc! Yeah. <laughs> uh, somehow he doesn't live through this? No, he lives through that. He then yeah. chases Apocalypse, who's teleporting away, and decides to fire a beam at Apocalypse, but Apocalypse disappears, and so he hits Hank's awesome jet that Mystique showed up earlier, and hits it right in the engine, thus creating an explosion that will blow up the entire school and kill everyone in it. Oh! You don't see Havoc die, but when Quicksilver gets down there and 
Havoc isn't there and Flames are. And so that puts a pallor on the whole Quicksilver scene for me as it's all happening as Havoc is burning. Well, and that's what's confusing is this is where we're reintroduced to Quicksilver. He's going to go to the school. Yeah, we saw him earlier playing Ms. Pac-Man and watching Knight Rider, and he knows Magneto is his dad. Magneto was on the news again because he was discovered in Poland, and he's kept Charles Xavier's card for 10 years, and he finally wants to tell his dad, hey, dad, I'd like to get to know you. And so he just happens to be going to the school and eating a Twinkie at that moment <laughs> when he can tell the school's going to blow up and he's going to get, for the second time in two movies, he's going to steal the whole movie. Well, yeah, I feel like they really felt the producers, the writers, like how to re-upstage the best thing about Days of Future Past, that Quicksilver scene. And I do like this, I, but I assume because Quicksilver is going to save everyone in the school as he's running around, I just assumed when he runs in and he's there where Cerebro was and where Apocalypse showed up that Havoc was saved at that same time, but I guess not. He was already dead at that point? Yeah, I wondered on my first watching, did he save Havoc? And then after, they're going to be like, well, where's Havoc? And it's a weird moment because Quicksilver's so high energy. is like, I saved everyone, but he didn't. And on the second watching... He gets to that basement first and looks at the explosion, and Havoc isn't there. Havoc is already dying in the flame, but he's engulfed in it already, and so Quicksilver saves everybody else. Yeah, what's weird for me about this film is, like, you're dealing with the end of the world, but then you got this Quicksilver moment. Like, you're all the kids are going to die at the expansion, except we're going to make it really funny, and Quicksilver's going to show up and save them all, and there's going to be a pizza dog. I love pizza dog. I yeah, can't I, say that the, the, enough. The tone of the scenes feels inappropriate for the, you know, we're supposed to mourn Havoc afterwards, but I feel like they do top themselves what they did with that Pentagon scene in the last film. Like, when he's running over the boards as they're exploding, it's very, like, Mario video game-like, but wrapping people up in mattresses, throwing them out the window, setting up a big sheet to catch them. Like, I, I do like all this stuff. For some reason, I thought that that was going to be a one-off. I never assumed they were going to do... That scene again. Now I realize we're going to get it every time if Quicksilver is in the movie. Well, because it was the runaway scene of that film. They got to do it now. Yeah, no, and it is. And it, on one hand, that makes it less special. Not disappointing, but less special of like, oh, okay, well, this is the scene. Yeah, but great scene. And, and we love it. And you guys agreed with me. This movie is fairly somber overall. To have him come in and, and rejuvenate and bring some comedy and fun. I mean, yeah, they went to the mall, but for the most part... Most of what's lighthearted about this movie gets exiled. Yeah, they cut tons of mall scenes that were supposed to be more fun. Nightcrawler joined a dance crew and breakdanced a little. I would have loved that. There's a Oh, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah, I want to see it too. They said they're not doing a what they call Jubilee cut. He won't do that. There's got to be a Jubilee cut. Why is she in this film so much and she doesn't do anything? <laughs> I thought for sure there's got to be a cut scene where she's making fireworks. She never used her powers in any of the cut scenes, but she did talk a lot more and hang out at the mall. And so they're not reintegrating it. It will be on the DVD. There's even a Dazzler reference. They pick up a Dazzler album who was not Taylor Swift. But this Quicksilver scene, my favorite moment of this entire movie, and yet... Because Havoc is shown dying first, the whole thing feels off that we are having a fun scene right after a character who's survived three movies, you know? He wasn't in the last one, was he? Yes, he was at the military base that is rescued by Mystique. He's there with Toad and okay, weird other dude. Right. 
Briefly. He's a big part of the first movie, and he was a small part of the last movie, but I definitely didn't process that he had died until this fun scene is over. So it doesn't feel like death and then fun scene. It feels like fun scene distracts us until we realize, oh, not everyone got saved. It sets us up for a climax. And here's the thing, though. I like the fun scenes in this. I like the comic book feeling scenes of this movie because... The dramatic ones, they don't work as well. Even Days of Future Past, which I didn't like a whole lot. I barely recommended that one. Like when Magneto is is raising the stadium. Like, I feel like those dramatic scenes pay off. This Apocalypse character is so comic booky to me with just his powers and his history. The more fun you go with this one, the better it's going to work. But I agree with Stuart that this one isn't as special as the last one. I love certain bits of it. I love Quicksilver, the two kids kissing the repulsed looking girl and the guy with his tongue out and Quicksilver doing the guy's hair and dancing with Moira. There's fun stuff here. Pizza dog. Don't forget oh, pizza God, dog. I love pizza dog. <laughs> Just that one shot of pizza dog almost makes this movie recommendable right there. What's funny is there was a Hawkeye comic book series where they actually did have a pizza dog. So I do wonder <laughs> if that's a reference to that. Nice. And there's so much going on, though. I feel it's not as good a use of Quicksilver because he runs in and out of the frame so often. Last time we followed him completely and saw him do everything. Here, there's so much more to do. It's quick cut and your rhythmics. I think Time in a Bottle was a much better Quicksilver song. They could have picked something more in the 80s. I don't know what this scene had to do with dreams. Like no. <laughs> Well, no, it's the beat. It's the the only time they're using synth music, and it's just cuts well as a piece of music. The Lyrically, it does not. So the whole thing, it doesn't match what they did in Days of Future Past, and yet it's still the best thing in this movie. Yeah, what I can't deal with is the next 20, 30 minutes that don't need to be in this film. Like, that mansion blows up, and right away, Stryker shows up for reasons. Yeah, we all agree this movie is too long. Yes. Here's what you cut. And I know why they don't cut it. It's because, it's what I said, they can't have an X-Men movie without Hugh Jackman. They just cannot do it. First Class is the best X-Men film, and he had a cameo. Here, they take 20, 30 minutes to force Hugh Jackman into this film when he doesn't yes. need to be. That's all that it is. And... Of all the characters I did the age match on, Stryker is the most screwed up age-wise, too. He looks exactly <laughs> like he did in that last movie. Ten years have passed. He should be much older. Keep in mind, in 17 years, he's going to be Brian Cox. <laughs> but this whole thing is a diversion that is needless. And more of those mutant deafening power cages where Ugh. you can't use your powers if you're trapped in there. And Hugh Jackman... I love Hugh Jackman. You said they can't make an X-Men movie without him. Well, they're going to have to. He's said he's hanging up the claws unless he's really just bluffing for tons of money. But is this the worst Wolverine role ever in his chance <laughs> and that silly hat? And I love the comic it's based on. I know they're trying to recreate it, but in person, he looks dumb. My problem with Hugh Jackman here is that last Wolverine movie, that dude, he was Hugh Jackman. He, he was <laughs> so fit. Here... He's got a spare tire. Like, he showed up for a day. There's no choreography going on here. He's just, like, jumping around, slashing people. I guess he's supposed to seem feral, but 
this is bad. When he looks into that security camera yes. and like makes faces. Oh. oh, that's painful to watch because I love Wolverine and I love Hugh Jackman. I do I don't think he looked like a spare tire, but I do think that he may have just begun the training for the next Wolverine film and they're like, good enough. It is too bad. Like it is sad. We want to seeing Hugh in this way. We want to remember him looking more virile and fit than he looks here. And it is it's a cameo that makes us happy if you wanted Wolverine in the movie, but what he's given to do is pretty insignificant. And the audience, there were people again excited, like when Jean Grey, Nightcrawler, and Cyclops go into that room and there's they think it's an animal in a cage. Like people are like, oh, oh, like so excited to see Wolverine. Oh, people knew? Oh, I yes. had no idea. In my audience, I heard people just whisper, Wolverine, Wolverine. Oh, I had no idea. I mean, he was in the trailer. It was in the trailer. They What? Yeah, they spoiled it in a later trailer where you see the claws come out. Oh, okay. You guys have seen trailers. I have not. I had no idea he was in this movie. So it was like happy for half a second. And then I was like, but this looks dumb. And yeah. even though he's doing massive carnage, I mean, this is a horrible body count here, but it doesn't feel that way. It's actually Wolverine in Berserker mode that we have been denied in so many movies. Yeah, it's no, the, one of the best scenes. We actually I, see blood on the claws. Yeah, it's. I, I said earlier, this is kind of a hard PG-13. I'm honestly surprised they got away with as much blood as they did in these scenes and as much just stabbing. A lot of it's off screen. But you see the carnage, or you see him on screen, but stabbing off screen. Don't get me wrong. I think that he looks silly in the outfit, because in the comic, he was naked. And he went naked in X2. I don't know why they had to put chance on him, but... You couldn't have his little willy floating around while he's stabbing people. Yeah, I, I think you know very well this is a PG-13 movie. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to see Hughes Jackman. I'm just saying that... You could have done strategic camera movements and things like that in the comic. There's nothing strategic about the camera here, though. It feels like, is there even CGI here? He's getting shot with bullets. We never see him heal. Again, this feels like Jackman's got a day to film. Yeah, I agree. It feels rushed. It does feel rushed. We see bullet holes in him. Later, he's going to pull the Weapon X mechanics out of himself when we see him heal. But I would say he's on set for a week, not a day, but it does feel like there was no purpose. And in fact, Singer said he called Jackman up, pitched the scene. Jackman said, I'm in, mate. Call my agent. And they worked it out that way. And he showed up and shot very quickly. It's nice to see him here. It's needless to see him here. But it does help create this diversion. If we're going to have Stryker, let's at least have Wolverine. But what this really does, and it's like the Flash scene in Batman v Superman, we're setting up the next Wolverine film. We got to explain he's got the metal claws now. We've got to explain his memory thing all over again because X-Men Origins Wolverine has been wiped from the slate and we're just being led into Wolverine 3 now. I don't need a prequel to Wolverine 3. We got Wolverine 1 and 2 for that. This is, again, 30 or so minutes of unnecessary action. Nothing is accomplished except... The X-Men get a helicopter? Well, they knew McTaggart. She was with them. She could have just said, hey, I got a contact with the CIA. Let me get a helicopter so we could go to Cairo. Where Apocalypse and everyone's just like sitting around on rock. Yes, doing nothing. This is the slowest world takeover in history. It's not like he's getting stuff ready. He's going to give a speech about how before he was betrayed, which again, we don't know why, this would have been the center of the universe. And so he's going to kill 7 million people, give or take, by raising a pyramid and 
bringing Cairo to ruins. But he needs to get Professor X to do the body transfer. He really wants those mind powers. Yeah, that's why he raises the pyramid is so that he can get the full power of the sun, which then will allow him to incorporate it, enmeshed with the character. Yeah, he wants Charles's power and makes Charles send out that communication worldwide and... For some reason, even though they are in the mutant power-free zone, Quicksilver and Mystique and the star mutants, who are the only ones Stryker decided to take instead of capturing them all, he takes... That is so funny. He's like, I want that one because that's a star, and that one's got their name in the credits. Give me that one. It's like... (laughs) She's got an Oscar. Get her. Yeah. (laughs) But they can still hear it even though they're in that cage. And this is when he tells Gene, hey, I'm in Cairo, get the others, come to me. But he's going to try to resist Apocalypse, and Apocalypse is like, eh, I'm just taking your body, because then I can be everyone, and no, there will be no rebels, because I'll c- mind control. This isn't like a Chucky thing, right, where he, he's stuck in a doll or stuck in an inferior body. He just wants to upgrade his powers. It's not like he's so old he's about to die. Correct. No, no, I never took it that he changed because the body was worn out. I took The first it to one be... was. Really? He was transferring into an immortal because he was old Apocalypse. He's even in the credits as old Apocalypse. Well, yeah, but he, I mean, yeah, he was old, but that wasn't why he was transferring. He was transferring because he wanted that power to rejuvenate. After waking up on that table, if he had run into a mutant that had a power that he'd want, he would have turned around and done it again. Yes, I mean, I yes. do feel like it's not based on a certain amount of years and then I'll, I'll renew It's that whenever I find a mutant that is worthy, I will become him. I will absorb him. But if he hadn't found the immortal one, I think if he hadn't found a good mutant in 80 years, he'd still have to do it. Right. And then this should be the last one that he needs, because once he has Charles's power to psychically link with people and control them, there'll never be another rebellion. There'll never be anyone but a version of himself. But he's he's a micromanager. Yes. <laughs> he's going to be in everyone's head. But if I were him, since he is a micromanager, I'd also be transferring into Magneto's body because Magneto is more powerful than he is. He needs Magneto. He shows him you. Ha- there's metal in the earth and you can move the earth and it's Magneto who can just stand in one place in the middle of a sphere of magnetism and raise the entire earth. Is that why he stands in one place? I thought it was because they must have run out of money because this climax looks cheap. Like when we get into that pyramid and they're going to do that body transfer and there's like statues of the four horsemen. I'm like, this is really just bad green screen CGI. Like this movie gets a downgrade at the end for some reason. I wasn't sure if the statues were fake. I didn't get that. But when the shipping containers are flying at buildings, they just needed wings and they were flying toasters. I'm telling you. I feel like what might have happened here is that they weren't done. You know, they had to meet a, a deadline and the, they would have maybe have liked more time to finesse. It feels like a lot of the scenes would be just fine if they had a couple more weeks to work on it. But it was like, nope, this is what we had. And the effects house screwed up and we got a hundred other ones. And oh, well, this is going to be that shot for this scene. And so you have a real mix and match here at the end of quality. The quality control is not very good on the visuals of the climax. I mean, when Mystique and Beast and all of them show up in their helicopter, you get Psylocke doing that flip to cut a car in half and doing that dramatic pose. They show that in the trailer. I thought it was unfinished in the trailers, but no, that's what they went with here. There's, it's something awkward with the camera angles and just the sheen on the on the picture. There's just something that looks 
very artificial. And I get it. This is all green screen, and they don't have these magic powers, but it looks artificial in this film at the end. Well, you know, I don't think any of us have ever been complimentary about the way that Brian Singer stages action. I don't think that that was his forte, and maybe that's part of the problem, too. Days of Future Past was his best, with the Sentinels in the future. That's the singular best action he's ever done in any movie he's ever made, and I've seen most of them. But... Here, yeah, he's back to crappy action, and we're like 20 minutes from the end here, and we're finally getting a fight. Yes, we had a Quicksilver scene, and yes, Havoc shot a couple things, and yes, Nightcrawler and Angel had an aborted fight in a cage, but this is our first real fight, and I'm like, it is coming way late. I started to think about all the other X-Men films. There have always been the earlier fights, Wolverine versus Sabretooth in the snow in the first one, and... You know, the various middle battles. You usually have the battle where the good guys lose, and then they come back stronger and win. We lost Havoc. Didn't that feel like a major defeat? No, it didn't, because Singer (laughs) staged it bad. So here, we're finally getting a fight, and I'm like, finally, oh my god, I've been waiting for this in my superhero movie. You know, that's not something I ever keep tabs on. Like, if I'm engaged, I I don't need a lot of punching. I mean, I think that's just... The, the fact of the matter, what I felt like is I don't want to sit through all of this histrionics to beat up Apocalypse. I don't want any fighting. I just want this movie to wrap up quickly. I, that, <laughs> that they're going to try to outtop themselves with fight atop fight is exhausting. If the drama had worked, I'd agree with you. I think it's because the drama didn't work for me that I was itching for action. What feels weird to me is, you know, there's this line at the mall that, where they're talking about Return of the Jedi, and they get a bit metaphysical, and Gene Grey goes, well, we know the third one's never good. That's always the worst film. Because Singer has to establish his status quo. He wants to take a dig at Ratner. Well, I feel like, dude, this is the third part of this Decades trilogy. You better watch yourself here. Cause- Seriously, he cut the entire mall scene, but somehow left this out of... Watch the film a second time. Look where the scene is when they're walking out of Return of the Jedi. It is awkwardly edited in, and because it's not part of a larger scene, it means that he decided to break up the flow of the movie, which is already poorly paced, in just to get a dig at Ratner. Guess what, dude? You're digging yourself. Yeah, and here's my thing. With... A character like Apocalypse in the end of the world. Well, Ratner, he one of the things I do like about The Last Stand, I know it's a controversial stand to take, but what I like... Yeah, I just want to say if we got into Cerebro and looked at the people that thought that Last Stand was the best of the original trilogy, it would be you two. <laughs> no, 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 no. I never said it was the best. I never said it was the best. I did. I said it was the most rewatchable because <laughs> it's so light and fluffy. But you get these huge mutant fights there where it does feel like this X-Men universe. Here it's the end of the world, and we got the four horsemen versus, like, four of the X-Men. Like, it is a very small battle for Mm -hmm. something that's supposed to be apocalyptic. I mean, things are blowing up. They cut away to Australia, and we see the opera house go up. I mean, no opera going on, so thankfully no one died, apparently. Believe me, this movie doesn't need to do more. I can tell you that. But what I feel is that I'm not particularly invigorated by what's going on. The important things, as I can break it down, are that Nightcrawler goes and grabs Charles from the transference table, and thus he's lost his hair, but he's kept his life, and they're protecting him. They lose their plane trying to get away, and then... Quicksilver gets some punches in before his leg is broke. And again, Quicksilver steals the fight. He is the best one. And he makes Apocalypse look as stupid as Apocalypse has always looked. 
He does. Like, I'm like, wow, Apocalypse really is a bitch if he's getting taken out by Quicksilver. <laughs> but yeah, but then there's also a psychic fight going on. Again, because Singer wants us to compare this to what Ratner did. Like, is this a better Dark Phoenix story than Last Stand? Like, they want to bring up Jean Grey and that she has these powers. Like, when Apocalypse first resurrects himself, there's, like, this earthquake that the world feels. And, like, she burns up her room. Like, she's got this... They want me to care about Jean Grey and her Dark Phoenix powers here because maybe that's what they want to do in the next film. Here's another trailer for another movie that it will come maybe come out. I feel so bad that Singer is just so angry at those who took the franchise after he walked away that he feels he's going to have to retell that story and show his version is better. It's it's petty, but beyond just my distaste at that. This ending does feel small. Why is Moira in this movie? She's just literally going to stand around and watch the climax. I like the Beast Psylocke fight. They cut a lot out of it. Quicksilver, he gave this great speech early on. You know, Evan Peters, we talked about his effects scenes, but we didn't talk much about his acting. But I like him in this film where he gives that talk and goes, you know, for a guy who moves as fast as I do, I'm usually pretty late because he talks about missing his dad and not saving havoc and he you know also cops to i'm still living in my mom's basement i'm a loser and he comes all this way he's done everything to see his dad gets there and he's like yeah i'm not gonna tell him what i find hilarious is like magneto i guess is in this trance he's created this magnetic field around him quicksilver is like pushing it poking it nope no way we could get in there so what did they do to get to magneto mystique goes hey magneto listen to me like <laughs> and he remembers he was in the best x-men film because we get clips from first class yeah. and that changes his mind yeah that stuff is terrible i it just flat out is terrible i dramatically i mean you guys were bagging on lawrence in the last movie and i didn't see it but here how can you not? She does not want to do this part. Her whole arc is that she doesn't want to be a hero. Yeah, no shit. She I doesn't mean, want to be an X-Men, literally, in these films. Yeah, it's you don't want to be a superhero, and you don't want to have to do these kinds of movies, and this does feel like contract obligation. I'm glad you come around to that, Stuart. It's here now. I mean, I don't think that that's true. Watching those other movies again, I still see her, particularly in first class, with Spark. No, she wasn't a big deal yet. Yeah, yeah. it was after she became famous. It, with Days of Future Past, she said, I'm famous now, I'd like to renegotiate my contract. And Fox said, absolutely not, you signed this. And so she showed up and said, well, if that's what you're paying me, you're paying me 10% of what I get elsewhere, I'm going to give you 10% of my performance. Yeah. She even went so far, I have this as absolute fact, they made a toy of her, and she's like, no, absolutely not. You're not going to sell a toy of me as Mystique. And she squashed it with likeness rights because she just doesn't want to be associated with this. And she's not in the makeup this one. Yeah, did they CGI her face blue in this one? I noticed she wore clothes. Most of the time she's Mystique. Yeah. She happens to wear a flight suit so that they didn't have to do the full body suit that she hated so much. But it's not that Mystique doesn't want to be blue. It's that Lawrence doesn't want to wear the makeup. And truthfully, when she puts on that makeup, it's like, I'm not going to act anymore. Hey, Magneto, you're no students anymore. You're X-Men. She really is just, she. she's pissed that she's in the blue. 
she is as unconvincing as Katniss was making those propos. I mean, she is, <laughs> yes, going through the motions awkwardly in a green screen room, waiting for it to be over. And I see it here. It is throughout. This is a the worst performance I've ever seen her give. Agreed, completely. And she is a tremendous actress. I like her acting, but she's being awful here. And I think it's intentional. I got to think it's vindictive. I got to say, though, it may be the worst part of this film or my favorite part, or at least I like it got a chuckle. Like, I like how corny that is. When Magneto does come around and he confronts Apocalypse, he takes two steel beams, forms an, into an X to stop him. Yeah. Stewart complimented the, you know, production design. There's X's everywhere. X's are just embedded. Singer loves that. Charles Xavier's wheelchair has x spokes instead of regular bicycle spokes the more i watch this movie the more i see x's in everything maybe apple paid them off they're still on osx (laughs) but i did like the big steel x and then yeah all the x-men have to come together but really it's gene yeah gene has to unleash the fury and she's got to fight giant apocalypse like he's growing like i remember seeing that in the trailer mm-hmm. and that that was the big danger sign to me where he see apocalypse like become a giant i'm like that is that really gonna happen because i know that's a deal with him but putting that in the movie is a whole other thing there's some horrible lines in here like you're in my house now mm-hmm. you're gonna need mm-hmm. a bigger house I'm waiting for freddie to come and give some good puns in this psychic fight it yeah this is a psychic fight between charles and apocalypse apocalypse who's never been shown to have psychic powers they say they're connected I think maybe because the transference kind of started and took Charles's hair, because that's setup I need. That's almost as important as where Wolverine got his leather coat, is how did Charles lose his hair? Well, no, that's fair. I mean, we have been waiting for his hair to go through three movies. <laughs> have you ever heard of male pattern baldness? I didn't expect it to be in the midst of an apocalyptic battle. And I guess with Charles losing his hair here, that means that Apocalypse always woke up in 1983 it wasn't anything days of future past alternate reality or not we may be in mystique may be a good person but even if she was evil apparently they fought apocalypse charles lost his hair and mystique no mystique doesn't matter because they still won but this is something that mcavoy fought for they were actually going to have this fight in first class between Emma Frost and Charles in that scene in the Russian's bedroom. Yeah. They were going to have this mental battle that took place, and McAvoy loved it. It was his only chance to have a physical action scene. And then they saw Inception and said, well, we can't really do that. Inception has already done it and done it better than we will. So they cut it. And so McAvoy fought for a psychic battle where he could get physical, and we get this. And he does yeah. get bloody and... Yeah, but it's a psychic bloody. It's, <laughs> I, it's not like I feel he's in danger as he's like late. Like, I love that. He's like, I've I've got it inside to his brain. I'm like, oh yeah, he's hacked the brain and like lays down on a rug and like closes his eyes. Thank you for letting me in. Yeah, it's replaying the line that uh, he said when he took over Cerebro. I mean, they tend to do that. When the villain has a badass line in the middle of the movie, the hero gets to say it back to them at the end. What's strange is that I never really feel like McAvoy does have a kick-ass moment. I mostly remember this scene as him being held down like a little doll by the giant (laughs) apocalypse until, yeah, here comes Dean Gray to actually fix the problem. 
and basically he's trying to say it, it's a strength, but, but what we really see is that Professor X can't defend himself without the other X-Men. And truthfully, I think Apocalypse went after the wrong mutant the whole time. Imagine if he tri- gender-bended and went into Jean Grey's body, what he could do. That's the problem. He would have gone into Xavier and then met Jean. He's like, oh, wait, got to do a transfer again. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, that would have been a quick one. But yeah, they, what, just she finally uses her... They don't call it Dark Phoenix powers, but we're calling it that because there's a shape of a phoenix around her. She starts on fire and burns up Apocalypse. Yeah, she she gets the flames. She kills him. You know, for all Brett Ratner's hating on X3, when all the powers come together, first they do flay the skin from Apocalypse's bones, which was kind of cool. But then there's a dust effect, just like how Jean Grey killed everybody in X3. Look, here's the thing, guys, that you don't get about X3. People were mad because Brett Ratner didn't understand the characters and didn't tell a story about characters. And whatever you can say about this movie not having great action or repeating beats from Last Stand, they are giving more character moments than Brett Ratner ever gave. There's more characters in this film. And I think most people would agree with me that he was rather flippant with the way that he treated characters and got rid of characters. Oh, even I agree with that. People were mad about Cyclops being killed off screen. Yeah. But you're, you're saying there's better characters here. I I don't think it's because of Singer. I think Fassbender, McAvoy, like all those came from Matthew Vaughn's. I, I don't feel anyone new here mm-hmm. really has a, a character. I don't feel Jean Grey has a character arc here. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler's cool, but does he have an arc? You're right. I guess the biggest arc for the new character goes to Quicksilver, where he's trying to find his dad and then says, I'll tell him later, because I'm going to be late again. Yeah. I think the problems that I'm having and seeing are true of all the superhero franchises. It's great you want to build up the world with all these characters, but how do you condensely tell a story and give everyone their moment? It becomes harder and harder the more that you add. And what we're seeing here is people get a lot of half arcs, you know, that, yeah, okay, so Mystique is sort of a hero now because she's telling the kids at the rebuilt school that they're X-Men or or whatever. But uh, how do they not play Danger Zone, the the song, (laughs) when they're in the danger room? I was waiting for that. I do like the Sentinels coming back. Again, it felt like he was redoing X3 because he's doing the third movie of this trilogy, and there's Sentinels in the Danger Room. The very first Sentinel to ever be on screen was in the first scene of X3 in the Danger Room. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm like, oh, why are they doing Sentinels? We already saw them in the last film. We know they could be. Yeah, well, it's the old version of it. It's not the shape-shifting mystique Sentinels. It's Yeah, it's not the Sentinel from Thor, the Destroyer or whatever. It is the 60s ones. They also do a complete callback. Charles and Eric redo the speech from the end of the first X-Men movie that was Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Does it ever wake you up in the middle of the night that someone will come for you and your children? It makes me wonder, are we going into X2 next time? Well, that's what's so weird is that we've seen Magneto do horrible things. At the end of this film, he's rebuilding the mansion with Jean Grey. Like, they're sitting there waving their hands, making bricks float around. They want it both ways. They don't want him to do bad things that make him irredeemable. And yet they're going to gloss over the fact that he alone, of his own free will, because he changed his mind. He literally just changed his mind. Nobody broke in and undid a psychic bond over him. He's just like, maybe I've killed enough people already. I'm not going to kill the rest. 
and decides to fight back and betray Apocalypse. So he's killed hundreds of millions of people, but he helped put the house back together. So it's all cool. What makes him a bigger jerk is they're like, oh yeah, the humans, the regular non-mutants, they're they're reconstructing their stuff. I'm like, Magneto, come on, give him a hand. At least the Sydney Opera House, right? Boy, this is, feels like a replay <laughs> of uh, Man of Steel if ever I heard it. But I guess it's inevitable. Uh, these movies are ultimately a referendum about whether we believe in the concept of superheroes, whether we believe that any being has the right to protect us and how they should do it and if they are good for the way that they try to do it. And I get that you want to hold Magneto uh, by those standards. I feel like that can wait for another movie. Here, it's just enough to see that the house is still divided, but at least rebuilt. That, yeah, we have Charles and Eric agreeing to disagree. What was kind of weird is like, it seemed like the whole point of this film was we need the X-Men. Like there's a lot of lip service between Beast and Mystique earlier on where they're talking about, oh, don't you miss the X-Men? I Like I never, I'm like, okay, I guess like in the 70s one, they weren't an X-Men team. I guess this is about getting an actual team back together now. But what will that team look like? I mean, the, the curious thing about them being happily together here at the end is- All these actors' contracts are over, so- Yes, is knowing that it won't look this way whenever we get back here to the 90s. The weirdest thing for me is that Psylocke lives. I mean, they kill Angel and Apocalypse says useless. Uh, but I cracked up when she when she does that jump from the plane uh-huh. and like floats down and then sticks her lightsaber in the bill. Like I cracked up. That was so ridiculous. It was kind of fun. Well, you know what? I was fine with it. Yeah. I was I honestly was fine with it. But they do obvious shots to show her slinking away. I'm like, yeah, you go off and hang out with Azazel and Emma Frost. We are not seeing you again. <laughs> I hope not. I feel like they need to explain who she is. I definitely want to see her again, if nothing else, but to understand why she was even here. I want to know why Azazel was there, too, but he had better makeup. And we do get a tease about what will be happening next. I mean, yes, there's a Deadpool 2 coming, and yes, talk of a Gambit spinoff and Old Man Logan. I don't know what this scene is referencing. No, Stuart, you're calling it a teaser. Tell me what they tease. Tell me what you're excited about as someone that doesn't know the comics. Like, this is a dumb teaser. Mrs. Utani, we're going to tell you later. I mean, I feel like some anonymous corporation that you probably have some familiarity with if you've read the comic is going to take blood samples from the Weapon X program and what they do with that, who knows? It doesn't even seem to matter. Essex Corporation, this is supposedly setting up Mr. Sinister, who had a bigger role with Apocalypse powers in the comics. He's actually gave him a lot of extra powers. But yeah, Mr. Sinister associated with the Essex Corporation. Rumors, perhaps X-23, which is a Wolverine clone made from a teenage female prostitute. But that's the rumor, at least. That's where they're going. Well, what Kinberg said is that scene is intentionally there to set up Wolverine 3. Then why do we get a 30-minute scene set? It up? It's back in the same base, though. It is still setting yeah. it up. And so nobody knows who the bad guy is in Wolverine 3. They have said that they are basing it on the Old Man Logan storyline. Of course, they don't have the rights to Hulk, so you won't have a cannibalistic Hulk ruling the world. That, that's a huge storyline to go after when you don't own most of the characters. But you can still have the Wolverine road trip movie they're re- I, my guess is they're replacing hawkeye with professor x 
and Hawkeye was blind, Professor X can't walk, and they won't have Spider-Bitch, and they won't have Hulk, but... The Venom T-Rex. Oh, the Venom T-Rex was awesome. (laughs) Say something in English here. I have no idea what you guys are referring to. So, come on, you got a whole preview for Wolverine 3. You should know what we're saying. But basically, this may be telling us that the villain in Wolverine 3 is going to be Mr. Sinister, who may be trying to do something like clone... Wolverine because something sinister yes he's doing sinister things so I know a lot of people thought this maybe this is setting up the next X-Men film in the 90s as Mr. Sinister maybe it is but an interview said I thought Deadpool was going to swing in here I definitely thought they were going to do a Deadpool joke this movie is a Deadpool joke yeah I was waiting for a callback to Deadpool, some joke about the mansion or something. I just want Ryan Reynolds to do a commentary of this film so I can hear Deadpool just laughing at the self-important gravitas of this film. Hasn't Channing Tatum, like, suited up and been in costume? Wasn't he supposed to be in this movie as Gambit? That Gambit movie is never coming Mm, out. Okay. They could say there's a release date. I don't think we're ever going to get it. Here's what is known, is that they took Gambit back to basics with the script They are now scheduled to start filming Gambit in a few months. 2017, it looks like we only get one Fox Marvel movie, and that's Wolverine 3. Maybe Gambit seems kind of unlikely. They have promised Deadpool 2. They have not given it a release date. Just this weekend, though, they did put two dates that are just for untitled Marvel movie in 2018. and that's Fantastic Four 2! Yeah, maybe. They did say they're making a New Mutants film, which is a young group of X-Men that's going to have Magic, Wolvesbane, Mirage, Cannonball, Sunspot, and Warlock. So I'm betting in 2018 what we have is New Mutants and Deadpool 2, while they try to figure out what the hell to do now that McAvoy, Fassbender want more money, and Lawrence, I don't know that you could buy her off. And Jackman is out after the next one. Yeah, it's, they're really, it's not an apocalypse. It's not the end of the world, but it's definitely a changing of the guard. And wh- and how they go forward will be precarious. Who knows? Maybe they'll even sell it back to Marvel if it goes bad enough. Well, I'll tell you what I want. Once all the contracts are up, reboot this. I see a new X-Men universe, and the first movie in the rebooted X-Men universe was Deadpool. Yeah. Just start it over. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I mean, I'm not sure that going back to the 90s would be as much fun as going to the 80s, 70s, or 60s. I don't need necessarily any more history-jumping stuff. And we've already seen Dark Phoenix, for better or for worse. I do feel like if, yeah, we're not going to get the players that I liked, then why not just create it anew with new actors? Yeah, make it comic book accurate. Stop putting them in black leather S&M gear like they wore in the first film and they wore in this film. The flight suits. They made Deadpool comic accurate and they brought in a comic accurate Colossus and I don't even know Negasonic Teenage, Teenage War. Negasonic. No, she was not accurate. She had totally different powers. Yeah. You're wanting a Deadpool universe and I'm here to tell you that won't work. <laughs> Deadpool can do his thing, but we can't accept an entire universe where everyone is making dick jokes. No, but I think what Arnie is saying is don't shy away from those comic book aspects. Yes. That they can work. You don't have to do this more reality-based X-Men, this more down-to-earth version. Get us a new Wolverine who wears a yellow outfit. And is short? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm not sure that a short, hairy man in yellow is is what the world is asking for, but maybe. (laughs) The world doesn't know what they're asking for until they're given it. I don't know that the world 
was asking for Iron Man until they got it. Or Deadpool. Yeah. So that's what I would love to see them do is just recast everything, reboot everything, boot out Singer. But let's see if you guys agree with me. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the X-Men Apocalypse? Jacob. Well, we've talked a lot about Singer, and I do feel like he's damned himself by trying to be such a critic of The Last Stand. I I think The Last Stand is better than this one. Is this the worst of these prequel trilogies, whatever you want to call it? Look, I had so many problems because of Singer's smugness of rebooting his status quo with Days of Future Past. I'll have to rewatch that. But this film, it's not that great. It's also not that bad. I Look, we've talked a lot about the problems with the storyline, about motivations of the villains. They're not good. But there are things that I did enjoy here. I did enjoy when they really owned those comic book moments. Guys getting sunk into walls and falling into the sand and Quicksilver and a cage fight between Angel and Nightcrawler. Like, I do like those more, again, outlandish moments here. And yeah, cut a lot of stuff out of this. Cut that mall scene. Cut... The whole thing with Wolverine. They, they could have got this down to 90 minutes and it would have been a better movie for it. Maybe that's why you kill Cyclops off screen with Ratner's version. Just condense it. Get it down. Get get to those fun moments. I, I don't feel like Apocalypse is that weighty chess game that we've talked about so much with these X-Men films between Professor X and Magneto. Uh, this is more sandbox fun, and so I like those moments. So I'll give it, it's a recommend. It's, it's not very strong. It, it's not weak, though. It's it's kind of just middle of the road recommend. I had some fun in this. Stuart. It's something that I've always believed about Hollywood, is that once it entered the 80s, it was never as good as the 70s and 60s. So it's no surprise that X-Men follows that. I mean, I do feel like like 80s movies. It's got a lot of special effects. It's got a lot of flash, but the grit and the... Uh, the character, all of that stuff, not strong here. And so you got a movie that I'm very dispassionate about. I feel like for all the noise, light, and fury, it has very little new to say about the characters we know or the new characters they're introducing. I think it has solid moments, and I think it's a recommendable movie. The thing I was worried about was that this had failed. I don't see this as a failure. I feel like the negative reviews we're hearing about this movie is it doesn't live up to expectations. And maybe there's just superhero fatigue. But if I were comparing this to music, this is a good song that is way overproduced. There's just too many elements, too much tweaking of knobs. They just needed to cut a lot of stuff out here and get back to some simpler ideas. I think that we can really see the logic and I can appreciate, even though I didn't even recommend Deadpool, what they were doing with Deadpool or that last Wolverine movie, by keeping it simple and focusing on a small amount of people you end up saying a whole lot more than when you try to do everything in one film. So it is a recommend, but a a mild one. I'm balancing on the head of a pin. I really am, because this movie did a lot of things wrong, and we've called them out. The acting is poor by many of the players. McAvoy, great. Fassbender, okay. Lawrence, bad. Isaac, bad. Nicholas Holt, good. Rose Byrne, good for what little she has to do. I haven't seen a character more useless since I saw Benjamin Bratt in Catwoman, but good. Cyclops, bad. Phoenix, bad. Psylocke, looks good, acts bad. Havoc, dies. Quicksilver, good. There's The performances are uneven. The pacing is awful. It's so maudlin. Uh, the, I, you guys, I, I agree with what you guys say. This should be shorter. It really should. 
By the same token, part of me would have liked to have seen the rest of the mall scene just to have a little bit more levity in this film. I, I think the problem is it would have come right before the levity of the Quicksilver scene. It may just not spread it out. The, the problem is Apocalypse, then. You, you wanted a 80s teen X-Men film. No, but the problem with Apocalypse is Apocalypse. He's a horrible villain. The yeah. worst villain in any X film ever. If he's the first mutant, I'm glad they evolved. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I like that. There's nothing in this film except Pizza Dog that a previous <laughs> X-Men movie hasn't done better. There's no new stakes here. It's end of the world again. It's Phoenix again. It's Quicksilver faster than time again. But just because this movie has, it's really lackluster, but is it bad it has some bad elements but it's not a bad movie it really isn't it's a dull movie i think this is the worst x-men film ever made generation x that's not a film that's a television pilot it's slightly better written than origins wolverine but a hell of a lot less fun i think this is the first x-men film in the series that we've reviewed i, I i'm giving a red arrow to wow yeah i can't do it it's just i think this is the worst i think singer needs to go there's no reason to watch this. If Literally, if somebody came up to me at work, and there's a guy at work who knows what I do on the show, and after every new release that's a comic book movie, he comes up to me on Monday morning and goes, well, thumbs up, thumbs down, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. If he came to me on this one, I'd be like, there's really no point in seeing this. There's not. It's not that it's a bad movie, but I can't endorse it. I can't say it's good enough to go see. It's an X-Men movie that makes me want no more X-Men movies. I want to see movies with Deadpool and Wolverine, but Xavier School for the Gifted, you lost the actors. Don't bring them back. Don't bring back these characters, at least not till you're really ready to reboot. Let's see other stories of mutants, but let's not see this one. But they're really, damn it, Marvel has upped the game. There's Escalation. And Singer, you talked about his television stuff. He's also working on not one, but two X-Men television series, Hellfire and Legion, one of which is the Hellfire Club where Emma Frost was wearing lingerie. Yep. The other is Legion, um, Evil Mutant. Sure. And they said, unlike what Marvel does, these characters are being intended. They're being set up on television so they can come to future films. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not excited about that prospect. Again, I feel like everyone is... Their, their impulse is to make it more and more about the universe and less about the story. I think that hurts the movies, and I think that you can see that in this movie. But, uh, you know, I'm still rooting for this franchise. I think it can bounce back. It, lackluster, though, it may be. I do feel this is your favorite of the superhero franchises, Stuart. Yeah, I, I think it is, consistently. I mean, when you have ten movies, and I've endorsed seven of them, that's pretty damn good. I mean, I would put Apocalypse... I would say it and Last Stand are about the same thing. That this one is a little bit more about characters, and Last Stand was a little bit better with the action, but they were mo mostly kind of meh. I would I would rank Apocalypse in like sixth, and and Last Stand seventh, and Deadpool eighth, and Wolverine one ninth, and Generation X tenth. That would be the way I'd rank it. And then everything that came before First Class, Days of Future Past, X two, Wolverine two, and the first X Men before it. See, I'd put the very first X-Men probably only slightly above this one. I found that film to be poorly staged, and while I, I liked the actors in it a lot more, 
I had major problems with that film too, if you go back and listen, and they they got better. And I really feel when Singer came back last time, he had something to prove. And he really gave his all with Days of Future Past. And now he's back to just being lazy and where he was with X1 and X2. He's phoning it in. And I would, I desperately want to see more directors bring new visions here. He's not signed to a new film that we know of, right? We don't know that he's going to be doing the 90s movie. There's not been another X-Men movie announced. There's nothing firmly announced outside of Wolverine 3, Deadpool 2, Gambit and New Mutants. But while that's all that's coming up for the X franchise, we've got a lot coming up here on Now Playing, a whole lot of weekend of release reviews we're going to be doing. It really, this is when Now Playing begins Now Playing for the summer in the next 11 weeks, which, you know, I know summer doesn't start till later, but school's out. Between school getting out this weekend and school going back, in 11 weeks, we're doing eight Weekend of Release reviews. Oh my. We've got X-Men Apocalypse as our kickoff to the now-playing summer. Next week, Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Week after that, Conjuring 2. Two weeks after that, on our donation drive, our silver donation drive culminates with Independence Day 4 Resurgence. A few weeks after that, our Platinum donation series culminates with the new Ghostbusters. And then we got three more weeks in a row. Star Trek Beyond, Jason Bourne, and Suicide Squad. A lot of now playing in the theaters this summer. It's hard work on us to do weekend of release. It's a, It costs more to do weekend of release and not just for the ticket prices, but because it's faster editing, it's harder work, it's harder timing. I'm going to be in Philadelphia next week and taking time out of a vacation to record and now playing. Yeah, that's where it gets hard. Turtles, no less. Think about that. Yeah, you, 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 all those 11 weeks are time that I have to work this back into my life. I can't take a break. So, so it is. It's demanding. And, and what we ask in return is that if you can, if you're financially able to, don't go into the poorhouse. But if you have enjoyed our show, and you can give us something back, we would greatly appreciate it. And that's why we do these donation drives. And I think it's going to be worth it. If you love retro, if you love the 80s, and presumably if you like the X-Men going back to the 80s, you're going to love us going back to the 80s. This Friday, we're getting to Labyrinth. It's part of our retrospective of all the science fiction one-offs of that summer, 1986. Very cool. And... I edited Space Camp that just came out the day before we're recording this. That was such a fun damn show. I really wished, you know, we ever, every time we do a donation drive, there's like one show that it aches me that less than 1% of our audience who donates is going to hear. Who would have thought that would be Space Camp? But I, I might agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, it's like I wish everyone could hear our Space Camp show. And if you donate $25 or more to go gold, you get 11 bonus shows. Space Camp is one of them. And we've had people on Twitter who come to us who say our Men in Black series is their favorite retrospective we've ever done. And that's just a $10 donation. And you're getting Independence Day 1 and 2 later on. So we really appreciate, truly, all the support you can give us. Because, yeah, at the, we the weekends I'm on vacation. For freaking Transporter, I was in New York City 
And now Turtles 2, I'm in Philadelphia. It's not even the films I, like, would see that weekend anyway. <laughs> not films I'd see at all if it wasn't for yeah, the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to leave that alone until next week. But, yes, what it really helps us, it, it, what inspires us to keep doing it when we look at all the reasons not to do it and to have our own lives is that there are people that, that support what we do and help us do it. And so, thank you. If you're able to donate, we're trying to give back with a lot of shows this summer. Yeah, we almost didn't do Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and Conjuring, and we heard your voice where you said you want us to do them. I also hope that you hear our voice that we couldn't do these without your support. So, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me, and we'll talk to you on Friday, bub. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage, and your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men Movie Retrospective Series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as the Avengers films, Spider-Man movies, and many more, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, and Tron. We also have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chitting millionaire. And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Oh no, finish your tweet. There you go, hashtag it. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? Do you think I have needs? I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to hit the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. I'd say that you sound like an infomercial, but not a good one, like Slap Chop, more Shake Weighty. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! 
The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Lose the feed? Are we still alive? No, I almost would have liked it if they'd used the Knight Rider theme for this whole thing. He's shown watching Knight Rider earlier, and well, we hear the theme. Well, that's because you're a Knight Rider yeah, fan. Yeah, exactly. but imagine this whole scene with da 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 You would have enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, I would have loved that. I, I, don't get me wrong. I like your rhythmics, too. I've got their greatest hits, but it's... Is it more than that song? Yeah, there's... Uh, oh, my God, the, yes. Yeah. Uh, they, okay. they have about 20 hits. Yeah, and there's like 19 songs on that album. There's the one about uh, the raining again. The, the Here comes the rain again. Yeah. Oh Oh my god who's that girl don't make me go through all of them yeah they had a lot of hits <laughs> i am sorry to offend you stuart <laughs> missionary I have no idea. yeah no it's a good album i listened to it was in constant Sisters are doing it for themselves mm -hmm. these movies ultimately are are these movies are ultimately god what's the word S stupid disaster porn <laughs> no 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 um